Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, film critic Piers Marchant and film director Sean Baker. I, I put in a lot of time into casting. I mean, I really am looking for those people who have those personas where they will shine through, even if my writing might be weak in that particular moment. Their, their own personas will become enough to carry a scene. And I also have been very lucky. I've been very lucky to find a lot of first-time actors who have that skill, uh, who can really, um, who understand the craft of acting. And a lot of times people say non-professionals or like non-actors, but that's not true. I just find a lot of first-timers that actually <laughs> are actors. Um, they're just in the beginning of their careers. Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. Here we interview writers, artists, and musicians about their lives and work. We can be found along with past episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher under Fun to Know podcast, always with the numeral two. You can find photos and more about our guests on Fun to Know podcast pages at Facebook and at Twitter, and we'll be delighted if you take a minute to leave a review of the show on iTunes or any of those platforms, or just send me a note with your thoughts through Facebook. Thanks again for listening. Just a quick announcement before today's show. I'll be instructor of a new class starting in January at Fleischer Arts Memorial over five Thursdays. We'll be looking at some of the great works by women film directors in a film series called 50 Years of Women Directors. We'll see films by Agnes Varda, Claudia Weil, Julie Dash, Catherine Briah, and Lucretia Martel, it's an interesting batch of films. I invite you to check out more about the class at Fleischer.org. That's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R dot O-R-G. As we charge into fall like a pile of raked leaves, the Fun to Know schedule continues to fill up with a flurry of bookings. Interviews upcoming include discussions with a New Orleans musical duo, a podcaster and activist, another favorite film critic, and the return of Fun to Know's most popular guest. So keep checking back through the holiday season as the episode should be arriving with regularity. Now on to today's show. Two guests. First, a recent conversation I had with filmmaker Sean Baker. I was so taken with Sean Baker's 2015 film Tangerine, famously and beautifully shot from an Apple iPhone, that I started tracking down his earlier work. Four fascinating films, including two brilliantly executed micro-budget indies, 2004's Takeout, set in the world of New York City Chinese food delivery, and 2008's Prince of Broadway, about an African immigrant selling knockoff designer bags who was unexpectedly left alone with a baby that might be his son. Baker's 2012 film, Starlet, centered around a friendship between an elderly widow and a sweet up-and-coming adult film star played by Muriel Hemingway's daughter, Dre. But it was his 2015 film, Tangerine, that was Baker's breakthrough, hitting the zeitgeist right as transgender issues were making big news, and following two streetwalkers on a wild and unapologetic 24-hour tour through the Hollywood Strip, and featuring incredible performances from first-time actresses Maya Taylor and Katana Kiki Rodriguez. The pair were later part of the first Academy Award campaigns for openly transgender actresses. Now Baker follows up Tangerine with The Florida Project, a fascinating ramble around the world of budget motels in Kissimmee, Florida. The film is mostly seen through the eyes of six-year-old Mooney, played by newcomer Brooklyn Prince, and through her eyes the rundown kitschy motels and gaudy tourist traps 
seem just as enchanted as Disney's Magic Kingdom, just one town over. Her mother is played by Bria Venate, who gives a downright feral performance as Mooney's loving but distracted bomb, and Willem Dafoe exercises his compassionate side as the diplomatic motel manager Bobby. It's a film that vibrates with real life, and its episodic quality allows the tightening dynamics of the plot to escape notice until its emotionally tumultuous finale. It's a film that captures childhood more vividly than any film in recent memory, as well as further exploring the themes of work, morality, and people on society's fringes that is the hallmark of Baker's ever more impressive filmography. I was given a chance to talk to Baker just before The Florida Project, screened at the Philadelphia Film Festival, and when I saw the schedule I realized I was given 20 minutes just before Baker was due to walk on the festival's red carpet for a Saturday evening featured screening. I found Baker to be completely direct and unpretentious, and I would have loved to have him on for a more leisurely interview, but as it was, I was able to squeeze a few more minutes out of him for a half hour of conversation. We talk about Baker's New Jersey roots, discovering Cassavetes, Ken Loach and the Darden brothers working with first-time actors, 70s Hollywood film, the Art Gang series, shooting on video and film, and knowing how the movie is going to end. After the interview, we'll go to an even more recent discussion with film critic Piers Marchant from Philadelphia Magazine and the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Piers and I get into a much more leisurely conversation, discussing Baker and the Florida Project, but also Blade Runner 2049, the Cohen Brothers, George Lucas, Stanley Kubrick, the state of modern Hollywood, and some of our favorite films of 2017. But first, here's a short audio clip from the Florida Project, and then our talk with Sean Baker. Yeah. I got a videotape of the kids illegally entering the utility room. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That wasn't my and, idea. And water balloons thrown at tourists? You can't fuck with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Moni. You disgraced me. Harley. Yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. And I'm going to talk to Ashley, by the way. When your friend puts you in charge of her kid, that kid becomes your responsibility. You ain't taking responsibility. And you got that one, too? She's from Futureland, right? Oh, whatevs. You got to relax, my man. You going to redo my expense reports with your whatevs? Your kid killed my night. I wanted to watch the ball game. You're going to pay me for three hours that I got to work later? Hey, guys, pay the man for his three hours. I don't have any I don't money. Have, I don't have any money. We don't have any money, you shit out of Speaking of which, you haven't given me this which rent yet. You don't think I know that, chill. Thank you. You done here? Yeah. Thank you. Watch those kids. I think I'm gonna go home now. All right. Okay. I think we're ready, and you're just about ready to walk on the uh, on the red carpet now, aren't you? Oh yeah. <laughs> we'll get through all of these, don't we? Okay. <laughs> and uh, we're here with the Fun to Know podcast on the road, and talking to Sean Baker, the filmmaker who, over the last 17 years, has uh, somewhat quietly, at first with with an increasing volume, released a, a series of films that. Are, are stunning and uh, some of the uh, most interesting American films of the era. There's uh, not that many uh, auteurs of his generation that are able to uh, have a whole body of work, you know, a whole uh, 
a whole shelf of films, but he's uh, done it, and he's done it at a, at a price tag that uh, is uh, shockingly small. And we're here to talk to him about his new film, The Florida Project, his uh, largest production to date. It features Willem Dafoe and a, an incredible cast of uh, previously unknown uh, people that really uh, fill in uh, this incredible this incredible journey that takes place in the shadow of Disney. Mm-hmm. I guess that you know had to be. Uh, a big a big reason on why you went to Orlando and you've really found this uh, this uh, seedy underside of of Orlando that uh, still seems very magical with these oversized buildings that represent castles and and uh, oranges and everything. Uh, how did you pick uh, Orlando to be the yeah? Well, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, well, first off, thank you for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, we uh, we it actually takes place in Kissimmee. Most of the film takes place right next door to Orlando, with okay. the, the town of Kissimmee right next door. And, uh, well, the reason we chose it is, um, even though this issue is obviously a national one, um, with people, individuals, families, sometimes with children, struggling and living in budget motels throughout the nation, we decided to focus on it in this area because of the obvious juxtaposition. I mean, you have children growing up, in these budget motels right outside of the place that we consider the most magical place on earth for children. So that's how it came to my attention because there were some news articles written about this. So that's, that's how it really all began. Chris Bergash, who I co-wrote the screenplay with. You've worked with him quite a bit over your career. Yes. He's actually, this is my third screenplay with him. He did Starlet, uh, Tangerine, and now this one with me. And he, he's the one who brought it to my attention. And then the further we looked into it and, and actually started seeing images from there, his mother had moved down there. So he was actually visiting his mother a lot and sent and taking photos and sending them to me. So I saw kids hanging out in these parking lots and playing in the parking lots of these budget motels. And I thought, this, oh, okay, this might be our, our opportunity for like uh, an updated or a Little Rascals 2017. <laughs> I, I actually have always been very, very influenced and inspired by the Little Rascals, especially the Our Gang era. The the ones the later ones with Spank. No, well, yeah, later. Oh, well, you're the ones about that, that were the 30s one with, with Jackie and Cooper and yeah. uh, but Mary Spank, and uh, Stymie and exactly uh, yeah. the ones produced Farina. by Hal Roach. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, Spanky was discovered by Hal Roach. Yeah. Uh, it was just the MGM stuff later that I couldn't take, but but everything else I, I loved, and uh, even including all the silence and and, and those films, the, the kids are, are are sort of cut loose in a way that mm. uh, seems somewhat shocking today, playing in these construction sites and things. Exactly, yeah, they were most of the characters living or, or in the in our gang were living in poverty. I mean, it was set against the Great Depression, and and uh, but it was never the focus. I mean, of course, you saw their conditions, but it was always about the humor of just watching kids interact and talk. And and uh, so that was sort of uh, the way we went into this, saying this might be our updated version of The Little Rascals. So. It's, uh, across the, the series of films that you've made, there's a, a real focus on the, on the working class. And mm-hmm. uh, are you someone who, who comes out of a working class background? Or? No, no. My, my, I was blessed enough to have my... Uh, to uh, basically be born and raised in suburbia, USA, in New Jersey. Um, Outside of New York, I believe? Yeah, about 30 minutes outside of New York, and I would say it is uh, upper middle class. But what town is this? Um, Somerset County. Somerset it was County, rural right. when we moved there. and uh, I'm from Salem County down south of, oh, the, okay. of the state. Okay, so as you know, central Jersey um, was rural at one time, and then uh, in the late 80s, 
early 90s, a lot of corporations came in, AT&T, uh, and especially in that area, and, and built, it built up very quickly uh, yeah. with developments, et cetera. I don't know why I went off on that tangent there, just to give you a backdrop. But anyway, so that I uh, no, I was I was uh, you know blessed enough where I I was not you know I did not grow up in those in those circumstances or conditions. But um, not, not 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 only yeah. thinking about focusing on the working class, but your mm-hmm. films really focus on work in yes. a way that a few things, and that's a theme that I that I love in films, and it's very memorable through uh, a lot of white films. But it's something that that really gets lost in American film as a, as a subject matter. I think so. I think, yeah, somebody said to me, all of my films are labor films. So, oh, okay, okay. Um, and I don't know exactly why, to tell you the truth. I think it's because, you know, that's that's part of the the American dream is also very much linked to, you know, uh, to work and, 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 to the str- and to that struggle. It's also and, very uh, process-oriented work. And mm. sort of, it's very cinematic sort of inherently. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but you have these very humanist, humanist uh, uh, interests. Uh, you, know, you have a, a, a great affection for the people you see. And, uh, but without being condescending or, or you know, portraying them as saints, there's, there's, uh, I think humanist is even in the, uh, the, the blurbs for uh, your latest film. Yeah, I guess so. I I didn't write those blurbs. That's but but I I uh, do you feel part of that tradition? I mean, that is a tradition. I look at it as a way of, uh, and people have pointed that out. Journalists and critics have pointed that out. And I just said, you know, how else should I portray or represent uh, certain groups of people that I'm focusing on? I mean, I would never, I I I wouldn't feel right about unless I showed. Unless I, I treated my characters as, you know, as a fellow human being, you know. So therefore, there is the, you know, uh, putting, I guess, I guess, I guess people aren't used to that. Or there isn't enough of that in, in, in film and television, at least in the U.S., where there's perhaps if you're, if you're, if you're showing, if you're making a, uh, something that could fall under a plight of movie category, it's often there isn't really a human face put on it and i and i don't think you get close enough to the characters to truly feel for them and i think that that's it, these films have been sort of a response to that of what i'm not seeing i think in a way i think your modern day colleagues or, or, or you know the uh, fellow travelers would be like the Dardenne brothers or, or you know Ken Loach and uh, a lot of european tradition of of the sort of focus well you just mentioned uh a group of filmmakers that I, I absolutely adore and, and Mike I Lee would be Mike Lee well. but but Ken Loach is a biggie especially because just of, as of late I, I actually went back and I revisited his entire library and um, and I think I've seen almost everyone I think I've seen everyone um, and except for maybe some of the early BBC okay. television yeah. work Poor Cal but, was a long time for me to track down yes but that's out there now and um, and I just am so I'm I really admire his his uh, his very singular vision through 50 years of filmmaking where he's he's tackling important subjects but he's putting a human face on them and um, and people forget but actually Ken Loach has a lot of humor in his films I mean if you remember if Kess that 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 soccer football scene film. has to yeah. be one of the funniest scenes in cinema history riffraff is actually really humorous in that be- the behavioral humor between robert carlyle and his co-workers on the construction site so i think that he he 
he used humor in a very subtle way, not over the top, not slapstick stuff, but behavioral humor to allow audiences to really connect with the characters. And I think that that's something that is lacking a lot in films that focus on people in need and people struggling. There's, it's devoid of humor. And I, and I think that that just is untruthful. That's very untruthful. Yeah, uh, there's something too that's uh, to me I think sets you apart. And uh, looking back over your your credits, you really did the the camera work on, on many of your films, and your films are, are sort of visually you know maybe more vigorous than that sort of kitchen sink realism mm. uh, of, uh, of of British uh, you know renown. Right, right. I but, did I did camera work on Takeout and Prince of Broadway, and then some camera operation on the others. Oh no, I co I co shot Tangerine. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I um, do you think I of yourself shooting. as a cameraman? I, I, I mean, no, is that no? I really I I shot those first two films, and out of literally out of uh, I I couldn't afford a DP. It was necessity. It was necessity. And then um, with Tangerine, though, it was a little bit different. Um, it was because I had to shoot the first week by myself. Radium was on another job, so. I was forced to do that. And then plus, that was shooting on the iPhone. It was a different thing. I was able to, we were both learning that medium. And there was a lot of intimacy with my actors. And I really wanted to just be close up and with them. And it required me doing a lot of camera operation. Yeah. But even though Radium, without Radium, it would be a very different film. I mean, he did, he brought his wonderful, you know, his eye and his his gaffing expertise to it. I mean, a lot of the film, a lot of the film is actually subtly lit, and you wouldn't know it. Yeah, yeah. something that that has to be, uh, you know, your your personality I think comes through as you start to to look at these films one after another. Is uh, just uh, the performances you're able to uh, get out of these actors and, and so many non actors as, as well. Uh, what what do you think it is about your personality that's able to engage across a, 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 a wide strata of society? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I I put in a lot of time into casting. I mean, yeah. I really am looking for those people who have those personas where they will shine through, even if my writing might be weak in that particular moment. Their their own personas will become enough to carry a scene. Um, and I also have been very lucky. I've been very lucky to find a lot of first-time actors who have that skill, uh, who can really, um, who understand the craft of acting. Um, Has it all fallen apart at some point, I would imagine? There are people who you haven't seen in my films because we thought they would be amazing. Um, there was a guy, actually a resident at the motel we were shooting at. He was the biggest personality in the world. We loved him. Like, he would just be our comedy relief all the time. He would be cracking jokes. He would be really, he was just big, and he belonged in the Florida Project. The minute we rolled the camera, it was like he was just, uh, you know, that he just could not talk. I mean, he, he was completely in, he was completely frozen. He just, in, he was intimidated, and, and plus, when he actually did finally get some words out, it was all stilted and it was just not there. So it, it is, it, it does require, you know, you have to have the skill, you have to understand acting. And, and a lot of times people say, and, and thank you for not using that word, but a lot of critics say, or a lot of journalists say non-professionals or like non-actors, but that's not true. I just find a lot of first timers that actually <laughs> are actors. Um, they're just in the beginning of their careers. Uh, the woman who uh, is the mother in, in, uh, Florida projects. You actually found her through social media, through Instagram. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was 
there were a couple of supporting characters in Tangerine that I found through uh, Vine, that app that is now no longer around, and plus uh, YouTube. And so my and I and I did a lot of music searching on on social media for Tangerine. So my you know I had an open mind about it. I was like, oh, okay, if we find somebody on social media, that's fine. But it wasn't like I was looking at Instagram to find uh, somebody for Haley and. And I think that I was just, I don't know what I was doing on Instagram that night. I was just, I got into a black hole, you know, when you're just scrolling, (laughs) scrolling, scrolling. And I think somebody had reposted one of her posts and she instantaneously made me laugh with one of her her videos. And she had this real youthful energy and this real rebellious thing about her. I mean, she's a big pot advocate and she's very outspoken about that so it's her smoking blunts in every every uh video and uh dancing around and she also had the physicality with the tattoos and and i thought oh i wonder whether they were her real tattoos tattoos." so i thought she's so uh she's wow there's so much of Haley in her and i don't know whether she can act or not but she's already putting herself out there so i don't think confidence will be an issue she might I might just get lucky again let's see and of course I had to ask my financiers June Pictures who also produced the film I and I could tell that they weren't happy about this request <laughs> I but saw they, this girl on Instagram yeah, it's not something a producer it's a wants big, to hear it's a big risk because you yeah. can take that gamble with like a hundred thousand dollar movie but you can't with a couple million dollars and it's a big risk so thanks thank you so much to them for actually letting me take that risk and we brought her down to Orlando and she read with Brooklyn and I could tell from like the first couple of minutes that they would work. And then we thought about it. We we're like, yeah, of course, for Haley, this character of Haley, if you see a celebrity or some a recognizable face going through those struggles and resorting to the underground economy like that to, to support her kid, it would just keep taking the audience out. You know, and it's sort I, of a safety yeah. net, too. Like it, you, yes. You, you yes. kind of feel that, you know, the, the world yeah. exists for them outside of that space. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, she's great. Bria Venate. I guess Willem Dafoe is probably the biggest star you've, you've really had in any of your yes. films. Yes, yes, yeah. I would say. I mean, I've worked with, of course, seasoned actors and and known actors, James Ransone from Tangerine, and you know, many actors. I'm Greg the Bunny, but uh, which is a television show I was one of the creators on, but never. Yeah, I guess Willem would definitely be the big, biggest actor I've had as a lead in one of my films. As as, as someone who is a recognizable celebrity, yeah. somebody from yes. the Marvel Universe even. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, he was actually, he had to leave early to, not leave early, but he had a hard out to go to Aquaman. Oh, really? Yeah, so he was, we were... Aquaman's we, father, I think I can say it, you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't know what character is playing, <laughs> but all I do know is that he was like, you know, guys, I'm, I have about three more days here, and we better speed up because I'm off to Australia for months. Wow! So, well, yeah. did you have concerns about him bringing, you know, uh, uh, what he might bring to, uh, as a as a more known face to the yeah, story? Yeah, he also I think had the same concerns we did, where he wouldn't blend in or he would too, be too recognizable of a face in a movie where there are many faces that aren't. So, but again, it's like I think I I think I knew very early on that he's just. Oh, I did. I wouldn't have moved forward unless I was convinced that he's transformative. And I knew I knew he was transformative. And I knew that he was such a skilled actor that he would go to those places. And and it's not like you used him in the way he's usually used. He's no. not usually used for his sweet nature right. and that kind of thing he's used for. You. Yeah. But quite honestly, a lot of people are saying that they're like, oh, we, this is such a different role for him. And I guess you're right. You're right. Uh, but 
I was always thinking of him as like Elias in Platoon or or uh, Animal Factory, where Animal Factory uh, shot here in Philly. Mississippi Burning. You know these characters that were more of like the moral grounding of the film and yeah. and had yeah. So I, I shouldn't short sight him. He really uh, yeah. has had a, an incredible right. uh, career. Um, I was very excited to uh, look on YouTube and see you looking through the Criterion closet oh, in a little fun. video there. And, uh, that was you, nice. You dropped a lot of names that uh, I wasn't sure. You know, and looking at your work, I, I wasn't. those influences don't really uh, mm. jump out at you. But at Cassavetes, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the realm in which you work, it, mm. it seems like he would be a natural touchstone. Oh, most definitely. Touchstone. Most definitely. I have a husband's poster on my wall, nicely framed. Um, I uh, No, I just, I just uh, Cassavetes, I have to admit, I, I discovered him a little late. I discovered him, I was a little bit late. I think I was graduating NYU when I, when I, when I found out about Cassavetes, which is strange, I know. But, but I had discovered all of like the foreign cinema first, uh, you know, and, and really dived into and dove into uh, French New Wave and Italian neorealism and br- British social realism. And then finally I found Cassavetes. I was like, oh, oh, hmm. Yeah, to place him about him to, a little earlier. To place him shadows, you know, next yeah. to the French New Wave, yeah. you know, there's uh, yeah. they're both working a similar uh, mm. vibration mm. there. Yeah. It was funny hearing uh, you mentioned uh, going to NYU. I, I heard at one point you said that uh, you went to NYU hoping to to make the next Die Hard. Yeah, yeah, I you know, in general if you look at what I watch on like Letterboxd, you'll see that I <laughs> watch everything. And a lot of genre, to tell you the truth, a lot of genre. Um, and I was very, in high school, growing up in the 80s in the U.S., before the internet and before, you know, when your when access to movies were basically just your multiplex and your video store that had just the classics. I mean, I only knew about, I, I of course I knew the classic directors, the foreign directors, but they were only the biggies, like the big Truffaut or the big 400 Fellini. blows yeah. and breathless. Yes. And, you know, um, but, eight and a half. but for the most part, my movie consumption was Hollywood mainstream. And what excited you at that age? Oh, well, I mean, it was all about RoboCop. <laughs> it was all about RoboCop. <laughs> for Hooven, but that's the, another career. That's the thing yeah. though. As soon as I saw RoboCop, that made me then look at all Verhoeven stuff. And I was just like, uh, yeah, that was Turkish delight was a big thing for me in high school because I was getting to see character-driven, intimate stories that I didn't see enough of in, I guess, U.S. cinema. So at least that opened. Verhoeven working in Hollywood allowed me to see his other work and allowed me to look outside of Hollywood. But and to, re- and to really digest a whole uh, career of a filmmaker yes. and, and really uh, yeah. be able to, to get an idea of what a director does. Right. Yeah. But yeah, Die Hard was a biggie, and uh, and I actually I was very much looking forward to thinking I was going to graduate NYU and work for Joel Silver or something like that. But to tell you the truth, it was in those four years at NYU and being in Manhattan and having the Anthology Film Archives and having Kim's video and having the Lincoln uh, Film Society of Lincoln Center, all these things, I think, really... Uh, and it also was at a time when Soderbergh was blowing up, you know, Jarmusch and Spike Lee were already, like, gods to us. And I think my 
my focus changed a little there, yeah, changed from, direction. I spent my 20s in San Francisco, and that was another uh, place where you could really tap into a film culture. I and can imagine, yeah. Knock off uh, all those films. Uh, 70s film is, is something that comes up a, a lot in your, in, mm. your, in your talk as well. And mm. for me, you know, I'm in my early 50s. Like, mm. that's the, my real wheelhouse of yeah. the, Well, it's still, our, you know, I hate to say it, but I, I still think it's our strongest decade of film. US film. It is a sweet spot. Yes, it certainly is. It really is. There was no, uh, I think people took a lot of chances. There were a lot of chances taken. There were different perspectives. It was the first time that it was all, it felt like a new way of, of seeing yeah. through, through the eyes of a camera. It felt like a new, just a new approach to cinema. I think it was the influence of a lot of, of European films, really. Yes. Being yeah. able to influence large-budget American films mm-hmm. really was a, a special brew yep. in a lot of ways. And, and, and studios actually supporting auteurs and, and supporting character-driven movies. Yeah. What, yeah. What, 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 well, the Hal Ashby, uh, Hal Ashby films, uh, Freakin', um, yeah, just, you know, that whole... Even the, the ones that are... I, I really love a lot of the New York genre films from the 70s. Uh, Taking of Pelham 123. There's just so much. Panic and Needle Park. Panic and Needle Park, my God. That's that's like, that's one of my num- That's way up there for me. I had to get the laser yeah. disc. It was unavailable for yes, a long time. Yes, and, uh, yes. Thank God that, that, that Blu ray finally came out. <laughs> We were talking about 70s film and talking about it being this magic moment. Uh, I often think that it's the economics that underlie everything that sort of make these things happen. And I know you've really struggled with the economics of film. And uh, me and my wife were just bemoaning looking at uh, your films. Like, it's hard to believe somebody with this much talent and uh, this much vision should be, you know, struggling uh, to make films in the the home of, uh, you know, so much cinema. Um, a tangerine. I, I think when I last left hearing stories about you, you were uh, had to go back and live with your parents. After. Well, I didn't live with them. I I, I, I think I said I was on Brett Easton Ellis's podcast, and I said something where which they were it's, so it's true. I was yeah. yeah, and I had to actually ask for about three months of rent from them, which was a when you're doing that in your forties, you're like, oh my god, have I really? life hasn't worked out exactly the way I wanted it to work out. Um, but, you know, um, but then you bounce back, then you bounce back. And uh, I've, again, I was very blessed and lucky enough to have supporting parents who would do that for me in my 40s. Probably that's that's very rare. So, um, but... Is there, is there a story about how the funding came together for uh, uh, for the latest the film? The Florida Project? Um, yeah, it was, um, it was basically, I think the, by the way, when I was referring to that, it was right before I think Tangerine broke at Sundance. It was like when I basically had run out of money completely. But then, you know, obviously Tangerine sold for a little bit at Sundance, and things started working itself out again. And then, yes, exactly. And then, and then June Pictures, basically Andrew Duncan and Alex Sachs, they basically just came forward and said, "Before anyone else gets you, we're here to tell you that we'll make your next film. It can be in this." budget range which was what I needed and uh, I would have director's cut and you can't really argue with that so um, and they were willing to basically green light me on a, on a treatment knowing that I was still going to have to go and continue our research and continue writing our screenplay so it was it was a perfect situation and it also has set up now a precedent that I have to move forward with where it's director's cut so I won't let that ever go 
and please don't please <laughs> yeah. fight for all of us yeah, for that exactly um and uh, it was nice to, to see you come back to 35 millimeter with this yeah. film which you hadn't worked on since you set your first i believe right and i just uh i had a wonderful time working uh with alexis abe on this and he uh you know he had shot two of carlos regatis's films silent light and post tenebre lux both on uh, silent light completely on 35 and post tenebre lux a little bit a little bit of 35 and um or or a large portion on 35 and it was just uh something in which yeah we knew might pose some problems and slow us down but overall it was uh it wasn't as hard as you would think and it really didn't if you look at our budget it really didn't affect our budget that much and and i would say that there's that whole argument I can go I can have we can have a whole other podcast about film versus digital and my whole statement on it is basically I'm an advocate of all mediums and what and if you have you know if you don't have uh the the funding right now to shoot your film on 35 you do probably have a phone in your pocket and you can make a film so I'm not in any way poo-pooing digital but I'm also saying that if you do have the means especially at this time when there's the threat of the death of celluloid is a real thing um hey let's let's be supportive of Kodak and keep this medium going that's also an extremely important thing are, for are me. Are there film prints that have been struck for, uh, for this No, film? no, no. We're thinking about it. We still have to see how this will go. But the fact that it it originated on 35 and there's a 35 millimeter negative that is actually going into the Library of Congress, yeah. that that's for me... Uh, I, I would say strike one and just keep it at your house or something. Yeah. I, hearing the stories I've heard over the years, yeah. uh, there's a lot of films that don't exist because the director's widow has them, you know. Well, I mean, I'm going through a whole restoration on my first film for letter words that was shot on 35 and that's been a pain like you would not believe it was like i had to uh find little missing negative trims because we cut our negative twice it's it's gotten we we've had to go through a complete uh conforming and restoration and and uh so it's a big deal but at least it's it's at least it was there all right if 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 i'm still worried about doing my um, restoration and my upgrading of my upresing of of takeout because that's just mini dv that's just standard definition mini dv and i've had to make sure that my drives have been spinning every couple of months and i've made sure that i've had clones that I've, i make sure you know but that's that's way more that's that runs the risk of, of being lost much easier than a 35 yeah, video negative. is a, exactly is a very ephemeral yeah video. so so that's a whole other thing and i'm totally in the you know uh, christopher nolan's camp where i'm just i 100 agree that the only proven way of preserving uh films right now is on uh, on celluloid so that's something to be taken very seriously it, it's interesting you deal with a lot of uh uh, people in, in in tough binds, and there's a, there's a lot of great natural. You really have a great sense with premises, you know. It, mm. Even uh, a Prince of Broadway, like when it's set up, I, I was thinking like, oh, this is the setup of the kid as well, the Chaplin film. There's like, a lot of that, yes. You really find the dra- the, the the drama there, but uh, you're very graceful with the endings in, in your films, I think, and. Uh, uh, it, it would be easy just to, you know, really slam down hard on, on the tragedy on these films. And, let you, and yet you always uh, find a way to, to end with a, a nice uh, savory nuance that you can sort of savor. And, and uh, the, the latest film, uh, you know, maybe one of your, your grandest endings. And wow. well, what, what do you think about film endings? I, I have to say they're 
probably the most important thing for me next to basically the casting of the movie it's it's the way we're going to go out it's what you how you leave your audience it's it's uh it's the final it's statement the, yes and and it's usually something that we have think about in our first little brainstorming session where we're like what film are we going to make oh we're going to make a film about Walt Disney one, blah, blah, blah. it's going to end with them running. I mean, it came, it basically, we knew about our ending from probably the first day we were talking about I'm it. I'm always shocked at, at how often the ending seems to be up in the air in different films. Cause to me, I'm like, well, did you ever know what the film was about? If you didn't know what right. it how was going to end. Right. Right. I always hear that story about, uh, which I love, I'm, I love, but it's some, it's the way I could never work. It's where, uh, with Scorsese with after hours, where didn't he have to, didn't he reach out to, one of the Monty Python guys to, to write that I ending for him. I don't know if I heard that. Anything. Um, and so they didn't know how they were going to end it. And then, but I could never work that way because endings mean everything. Coppola and Apocalypse Now, you know, like, oh yeah, yeah, like how could he take everybody out in the jungle and not yeah. know how he's ending yeah. this film? Usually it's for me, it's, it's working backwards from the ending. It's, it's figuring out what will get us there. I think they're here to, to whisk you away. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Sean. For thank you very much for having me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's our conversation with Sean Baker. I highly recommend checking out The Florida Project and his other five features, among the more vivid films made by any American director in the new millennium. Now we'll head over to our conversation with Piers Marchant, certainly one of the more thoughtful writers about film that I bump into at local screenings. I was imagining a tight 45 minutes discussing The Florida Project and some of the latest releases, but no surprise, put a couple film lovers together and things stretch on for about twice that length. That's it over now, and thanks to Piers for coming by on such short notice. We're back at the uh, kitchen table studios at the Fun to Know podcast here, and uh, I couldn't be more happy to have. Uh, let me let me get your name right, uh, Pierce Pierce Marchant. Uh, and technically, it's Piers with Piers. a sort of Z sound. <laughs> Piers Marchant. There you go. Uh, here to uh, to discuss film. Uh, uh, Piers has uh, you've seen his byline perhaps in the Philadelphia Magazine, and he writes for. Uh, Arkansas Online as part of the Arkansas Democratic Gazette. And uh, we both uh, talked to Sean Baker this past week, and he came into Philadelphia to promote his film, The Florida Project, at the uh, Philadelphia Film Festival. And uh, yeah, I was curious, what, what, what was your impression of uh, Sean Baker talking to him? Well, uh, I, I usually don't uh, fall prey to the whole, he looks so much younger than he... I swear to God, I assumed he was in his early 30s, so I was stunned to learn that he's in fact 46. Yeah, yeah, he certainly has a youthful quality to him. He does, which serves him well. I, th I think that y you can see in his films that he has that kind of exploratory quality. He's not, uh, the feeling, the vibe I should say, is he doesn't go into making a movie knowing all the answers and trying to prove his point. You feel like he's open to what his characters tell him to do and what yeah. direction they want to go. Uh, digging into the extras of his films, and he's made six films since the year 2000. Uh, it, it, he talks a lot about uh, improvisation and, and trying to get the stories of the people he's working on. I mean, some of the films he's done 
Uh, in 2004, he did takeout about a, a Chinese takeout delivery man who needs to raise $800 in a, in one workday. And uh, in 2008, he did a Prince of uh, Broadway, uh, which is uh, about a um, man who sells uh, fake designer bags uh, in in New York City. And they're, they're very naturalistic, very realistic. Uh, you might mistake them for a documentary if you just tuned in. But he really uh, lives with these actors and lives with these characters and uh, and uh, lets them bring their lives in, into his work. And, uh, yeah, the sort of youthful, boyish quality has, I'm sure, is... Uh, uh, you know, it works well for him to engage with these actors and pull out these performances. I think he's a, a pretty unique talent, and uh, looking back at his films recently uh, really uh, gave me appreciation for a body of work that he's done. It's interesting, too, that the, his point, uh, his, his most famous point, I should say, uh, was a couple years ago uh, when Tangerine came out of Sundance, and it, it was rightfully hailed as, as a wonderful film, but the main point that everyone was so freaked out about was that he'd shot it on an iPhone. Um, and it works, and it, it totally works within, with, in connection to what he's, you know, the vibe he's trying yeah, to it, translate to us. But it's interesting that that's the thing that really suddenly put him on the map. Like, yeah, he's was, a guy who made a movie, a, a really good, credible movie with an iPhone. Yeah, you know, the, the, the headline was about the iPhone as, as, as much as it was about him. And I could see why he really didn't want to talk about it, because it's not... It's you wouldn't look at it and think it's a lo-fi you know sort of film. You didn't need to love the iPhone in order to appreciate what he'd uh, captured with Tangerine. But uh, it's and, well, I was going to say, and you note what he made, how he shot the Florida Project by comparison, a thirty-five millimeter. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> screw this. For the first time since his, his first film, his first film was yep. shot in thirty-five. Um, but it, it, it's interesting, and, and, and in some ways I, I kind of feel like he is, uh, you know, a good measurement of uh, the sort of uh, the sad state of uh, American independent film in a lot of ways. Is Right from the, well, I think the first film, you know, it's, it's set uh, among uh, young, it's, it's very different from his early films. It feels much more personal. It's about young guys hanging out, kind of like Diner or, or something like that. But from there, he's he did these uh, films that were very you know anthropological and stuff. But they all got rave reviews, and yet they were done on tiny, tiny budgets, and it, and it was a slow build to really get uh, commercial credibility to to get a you know, more than a micro budget for all of his films. And with somebody as talented as him, for him to to slog around you know so laboriously for uh, seventeen years is is a sort of sad state. He should have been swept up and uh, been given more opportunities. I kind of feel. Though there, there can, of course, an argument, an argument can be made um, that the filmmakers who, who are forced to work under these constraints have to find their own uh, kind of creative means of, of dealing with things. Um, and, and some of the work can actually benefit from, from that struggle. I mean, this is a bit of a reach, but I, have, I will go to my grave saying that, that Spielberg's best film is Jaws, and it's because he was in such incredible psychic disturbance that uh and 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 everything went wrong and nothing worked right and there were endless delays and production delays and as a result he had to keep kind of reimagining how this thing was going to work and i think in those moments he made some decisions that were you know made the film you know in large part made it what it is i'm, I'm not saying that sean baker <laughs> wouldn't have preferred having a bigger budget but i think there there is something that comes out of being forced to work under 
budgetary constraints that if you're a, a talented creative filmmaker you can figure out ways of getting around that to yeah something. yeah I, I, I there's something that I feel has really been lost in, in the in the CGI world in that you you had to come up with creative ways to infer things often you know that in jaws that the, they got the shark and it didn't work you know on the yeah, set yeah. so they really you know decided they were gonna you were gonna see it less and everything and in that inference to there's something about the imagination that engages engages an inference that that can seem more uh, moving and emotional when everything can be seen in CGI and it's as easy as, you know, a guy sitting in a cubicle, you know, uh, cutting and pasting things. Um, you're you're going to be very sorry that you just said CGI <laughs> to me because you're about to get a rant. <laughs> Here, Here's my thing with CGI. Um, and, and, and just and two examples off the top of my head. You take uh, any early Jackie Chan film yeah. where you're seeing this this insane guy doing these stunts practically and, and incredibly dangerously, it would seem. I mean, he, you know, the protections were, were made, but, I mean, he's actually doing these things. He's actually falling off the building and, and you know, jumping over the car and, and, and such. And you compare that, the, the, just the visual sort of kick of seeing that, or, or early Buster Keaton, for that matter. Compare that to, say, um, and not to pick on Peter Jackson, but to, to compare that to The Hobbit, where... You know, there's maybe the worst case scenario oh on God. CGI. Every every scene, every moment of action, like everything works just exactly, precisely, perfectly. You know, the arrow goes through the the, the needle and and goes through the eye of the one ogre and into the you know. And how the, many how many times have you seen somebody jump away from a fireball and they don't make it? Right, <laughs> right. Or I just I I honestly can't. There, there's a part of my brain, and I think this is true of, of all of us. I mean, maybe maybe younger generations who are really used to seeing the sort of cartoonish aspects don't have anything else to compare it to. But for those of us who grew up watching more practical effects, you see this stuff, and there's there's some... I mean, it can be visually very arresting, it can be very realistic, but some part of your brain turns off. Some part of your brain says, no, no. The, the, and, and there's no danger. And if there's no danger... It doesn't matter how perfect the stunt looks or how incredibly precise, again, the arrow flies. It, it reads as fake in our heads, and it's much less effective. You know, people always complain about the, you know, the, the shark jumping on the boat at the end with, with Quint and how fake it looks. Yeah, it, you know, it doesn't look wildly realistic, but I would much rather have that in any day of the week than any of the subsequent shark movies that use nothing but CGI, and they look ridiculous. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, there's no menace of any kind. There's nothing there. You know, and you see these poor actors I having feel to like look that's terrified at, you know, green screens. and <laughs> That's why I think it's turned into Sharknado at this point, you know. Like, yeah, uh, where else are you going to go with it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we'll get back to CGI, because <laughs> I think one of my favorite films this year, surprisingly, is pretty heavy cgi spectacular but uh, you know there's things i think there's fewer something that's few things that are further from uh, sean baker's mind than cgi at this point that's true <laughs> i don't think there's much, true enough. much of that kind of uh, action in his films um the florida project you've you've already re- written uh, the review for this what are your feelings towards his latest film i i was uh very impressed with it um I guess we should set up a little setup of what the premise is for his film. 
it's a film uh, set in Kissimmee, uh, Florida, sort of in the in the shadow of the Magic Kingdom uh, of, of the Disney Empire. But it's looking at people living in uh, low rent motels. There's one managed by Willem Dafoe, which has a, a young girl uh, who's named Mooney, played by uh, Brooklyn Prince. I, I think uh, a real breakthrough role. She's gotten a lot of attention for the the film, and it's really seen through her eyes. And uh, what is a, a very uh, harrowing uh, place to live in some ways it seems somewhat magical seen through the eyes of her and uh, it's also about her mother as well who's played by i believe the the pronunciation bria finate uh, a, a new star who uh, sean baker discovered on instagram and her own pro pot dialogues that she was <laughs> posting videos of and she seems like a wild child in the film i thought for sure this was some la actress who'd really studied hard and delivered this performance but i, I think it's much more uh, part of her personality those are her real tattoos and in the film as well and they live a somewhat harrowing and somewhat beautiful life amongst the sort of ruins in this motel and it makes for a provocative film and i think a real breakthrough for him so so the film opens with a, a scene of the kids and and we should point out that these kids they are a very specific age and it's younger than you normally see kids on on screen especially with with large roles they're like six and seven year olds or i guess maybe six to eight roughly um but i I believe brooklyn prince was six when she shot the film she might be seven now um but it's an age of kid where and this is sort of paraphrasing what john baker himself said um but it's an age where they don't see the the ramifications of things they they just are living you know kind of what's right in front of them so to these kids you know there's there's where they where where the 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 one group of kids are all living in a place is called i think is it called the magic kingdom magic castle magic castle and then sort of across the the street there's another uh one of these residents or non-residence motels. It almost seems like a bootleg Disney, you know? Right. <laughs> bootleg Disney world. <laughs> so, so the kids get to just kind of run between these these two um, motels back and forth and get in all kinds of trouble. There isn't a lot of supervision. Um, and I was going to say, so, so the opening of the film is a group of these kids, including Mooney, the uh, Brooklyn Prince character, and a couple of her friends, run off to the other motel, and they go up on the second floor balcony, and they start spitting off of the balcony onto a car beneath them and and the owner of the car comes out this um woman who's actress the actress i can't remember uh cannot remember her name in any event she comes out to to yell at the kids and they flip her off and go dancing (laughs) dancing off anyway the point is that you watch this and as as a viewer and then you know you have a child i have a child you watch this and your first reaction is, oh my God, these parents are just letting their kids run wild. Um, you know, this is what comes of, of you know, indulging yourself and, and, and not taking care of your children and so forth. So he, he sets us up to sort of feel that way. And then throughout the rest of the film kind of dismantles our notions of just what it is the other parents are doing instead of watching over their kids. And not surprisingly, the vast majority of them are working their asses off on minimum wage jobs trying to make enough money to maybe get them out of this horrible situation they're in. And it makes you really assess your own um, convictions towards uh, how these parents are, are being forced to live, how they're, you know, and, and maybe they're also guilty of making some bad decisions, but I mean, the deck is so stacked against them from the beginning, 
it, it's hard to, you know, by the end of the film, certainly, it's very hard to, to hold any kind of rancor against them. You understand why things are happening, and it's horrible, but it's 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 not entirely their fault. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's not a film that is uh, preachy or, or, or really, you know, stacks the deck in a way that, that it seems unfair. It seems very true and real to these situations and, and the situations people find themselves in. Both of us have kids. I, I think uh, you're watching these kids run wild. There's part of it that just seems, you know, scary to, to, to all the possibilities of things that can happen to them. Like grand arson, for one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, an interesting element to the story that that uh, uh, does make you, uh, you know, think about you know the, the letting these kids run wild the way they do. But on the other hand, as being a, a sort of child of the '70s, it, it reminded me of my real childhood and. And uh, talking to Sean Baker, one of the things he brought up was the the Our Gang series, you know, the uh, especially the 1930s Our Gang series, where it really was kids in vacant lots, you know, digging around and stuff. Like it, it has a, a feel of that, of that sort of love of childhood and, and the, the magic of childhood amidst all this. But but then you have all these other. I mean, he doesn't disguise the other elements that are very much around the kids. There's a scene about midway through the film. Where uh, a creepy predatory type dude approaches the kids and starts, you know, asking them questions, and they are really only saved, bailed out of this horrible situation by the Willem Dafoe character Bobby, who immediately sees this guy, and well, I won't give anything <laughs> away, but takes takes care of the situation. But yeah. I mean, we can you can see it from the kids' point of view as being this like this great playground where. They get this insane amount of freedom and, and helicopters are flying in and out every day and such. But you can also look at it as an adult or, or and or as a parent and, and see all the danger that's around them at all times. And and the, the extremity that, that, that their their families are really living in. Yeah. Willem Dafoe is so is so good in the film. I guess there's there's Oscar buzz for him now. I guess it'd probably be up for supporting actor perhaps for the film. But I, I, when I talked to, to Sean Baker, I talked about, you know, using Willem Dafoe in a, in a kind of different way. But he, he sort of corrected me, and I think he yeah, was right. He yeah, <laughs> he's, like, he's a very sensitive actor. He mentioned him, his uh, character in Platoon is yep. the moral center and a few other films. And, yeah, for his, uh, you know, for his extreme sort of, um, you know, skull... <laughs> <laughs> that that skull that seems you know Cro-Magnon in some way like he he really does have a sensitivity that he he has shown in films quite a bit. That that that's absolutely true, and I I, I took his point, and, and uh, he he cited Platoon, and he cited uh, is it Mississippi's Burning? Is exactly, the same what he cited for right. me as well. So so he's right that that Defoe. It's not necessarily that Defoe always plays the heavy or the villain or whatever, but one thing you can say even in the films where he's previous to this where he's been sort of the good guy there's always a certain twistiness to him there's always some element of of shade that you don't you're not going to quite read you know as him being safe and in this film um i and i I mentioned this to sean baker like you especially the first third of it you're waiting for that to happen like you're waiting because he's he's he almost seems a little too good to be true and you're like you know you know if Willem Dafoe appears too good to be true, that you know something bad is going to happen here. But no, time and again he's given this very difficult situation, and he's not—he's not a pushover. He knows when he's got to really take action and when not to. But he's—he's he's also not a hard ass, and he's—he's he's not trying to make the lives of his 
residents, you know, residents any harder than it already is. He seems very sympathetic to them, even as he's having to enforce the rules, at least just to a certain degree. And with the kids, he's wonderful. Yeah. You know, he's really their benefactor. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I loved him in this movie. And, and, and in some ways, the irony of what we expect from him and what we get makes him that much more of a compelling screen presence. Yeah. Um, I, I think we can talk about this without really divulging anything. But the film is, is, uh, is marked with a, um, a somewhat, uh, uh, what would you say, uh, impressionistic ending. It, it ends, uh, you know... In, Maybe in a, it shifts realities maybe a bit by the end. I don't know what to uh, to say about the ending. I, I did hear that there was some grumbling at the ending yeah, uh, when, he, it, yeah, when, it, when it ran that. at the festival. I was stunned. I was. He said, it, you know, the ending is turned out to be very, uh, uh, you know, controversial or whatever. I, I I'm not following people having an <laughs> issue with the ending. I mean, it, it's it's not a happy put a bow on it. You know. Um, everything works out for the best kind of ending, but it's not really that kind of film. I, I, I mean, I, here, my take on it, I mean, again, this is giving as little away as possible. I mean, to me, it felt like The 400 Blows. Uh-huh. That, I mean, that, that's, you know, you have the kid, well, again, I can't, can't give away much, <laughs> but, but it, it's sort of emotional crescendo for a kid and then an ending that could be read all kinds of different ways, but, but the, the feeling it projects in you, however you choose to sort of interpret it, it it's, it's not happy. I mean, it's a, it's a, sad, it's a sad moment. Um, I, I'm not sure if... I'm not saying I'm automatically right, but I, I, I never questioned that. I didn't find uh-huh. it elusive or, or you know unclear i guess yeah yeah i i i uh, i really like the ending and and and, uh, and for for me it really works but i guess yeah you know, I, I don't i think people want very explicit spelled out endings and and you know probably happy for the most part as well and 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 have it being somewhat less explicit i think is you know that that doesn't sit with some people I, I can believe that of a sort of general population if the film was released wide certainly at a festival setting, I, I don't understand. You would hope. Yeah, I, I, I don't get that. I, I was very surprised to hear him say that the ending was, had proven to be, um, as I say, controversial. Yeah, I think I think in one of the extras, I think for for Prince of Broadway, Sean Baker talks about being a little disappointed by audiences that you know you, you can complain about you know the the priorities of the uh, the film world or whatever, but he's he's been disappointed that that audiences haven't pushed for more and how uh, unadventurous audiences in America seem seem to be. Well, that's the whole thing, isn't it? That that we are raised all of us, e- even you know those of us. Uh, you know, film critics who, who get to see a wide range of stuff, we were mostly raised on the Hollywood ethos. And if we were lucky, I mean, I think you and I are roughly the same age, like, I've gotten to see a lot of the wonderful movies of, of the Hollywood 70s, but I wasn't really able to see them as a kid. You know, I, I wasn't sitting there at, at six watching The Godfather. You might have been. I, <laughs> I would not put that past you. But, uh, I, you know, I was raised on, on the this, this sort of standard Hollywood ethos. And certainly in the 80s, 
good God, you know, that's when it became kind of this, this sort of marketed machine. But you expect beats to go a certain way, and, and you, it's, it's almost like watching a sitcom from the, from the 90s, like, or, or even the, the 80s, like, you can see every joke, and you can see the setup for everything, and you know what the resolution's going to be, roughly. Any show that was able to break that cycle, even remotely, say, take Cheers, was hailed as, 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 as a, you know, as comic genius, or, or even Seinfeld, although Seinfeld really did kind of push the envelope in a in a more significant way. But we were raised to, to interpret these things in a certain way and, and, and come to expect these things in a certain way. Meanwhile, if you watch European cinema, they're not, they're, they're not adherent to that kind of idea at all, which meant it, which meant it was much less um, bombastic and, and, and sort of neatly tied together, but also made it a good deal more realistic. And, and, for my money, I, I always would prefer, even if it's sad, I, I'm going to prefer realism to sort of Hollywood hokum. The whole reason I loved La La Land as much as I did is because the ending is so, so brutally bittersweet. If the ending had been them, you know, dancing off into, you know, towards Paris or something, I, you know, I, I would have been much more likely to write it off as yet another <laughs> one of these musicals I was meant to like but didn't. But because the ending was so poignant and sad i was on board with it that's my that's my, my favorite scene in the movie there's there's a lot to like in that movie but as a jazz fan it, it's it's there's a lot of heresy in that yes movie. i can imagine <laughs> that can uh, imagine. that uh you know really is semi-infuriating and, and I, I felt the same way about whiplash as well his earlier film like it's 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 like watching somebody beat up your girlfriend or something, you know. Like we love the same thing, but the way you love it is horrifying to me. Um, it's such a. Although, a, the, to be fair, the jazz guy audience is probably the most. Uh, they would be one of the more like hardcore. You better get this right, you know, kind of audiences there there could possibly be. Yeah. If you were going to take on the subject of jazz, as God is my witness, you better get the details right. Everybody seems to like the Lee Morgan film. Yeah. The documentary that's out. Um, for me, what, what really is bothersome is the way that he, he sort of coaches it all in the past and this romance of the past. And it seems like that Ken Burns bad jazz documentary idea that jazz died in 1972 with, you know, Armstrong and, and Ellington a few years later. While there's incredible improvised musicians, especially in today's world, many more women. The, the uh, it's really been a, a breath of fresh air to see how many women are in the jazz world, where you know it becomes this really romancy, old-fashioned, old-world kind of thing. And in Chazelle's hands but I do my favorite scene is at the end when it, when uh, he plays the song and thinks about all the things that could be in this relationship and to me that really does capture as a music lover um, everything that a song can be and everything that a song can summon uh, just today I was talking to a, a friend whose uh, father is dealing with dementia and he uh, spent the uh, afternoon uh, playing music with him and his father said uh, those songs are all a piece of my life you know wow, and yeah. uh, uh, when you uh, have that relationship with music, you know it certainly is. Uh, it, I was uh, looking at the Philadelphia Magazine uh, online and uh, was looking at your best of, of 2016, trying to get a bead on the the taste of uh, of uh, Pierce. And uh, you did mention uh, the films you were looking forward to in 2017. Most of them have opened. Uh, uh, the one that hadn't opened is the Paul Thomas Anderson film, which, uh, I, breaking news, I think the trailer just hit, you said? Yes, I, I believe the title of the film is Phantom Thread. 
um, which just <laughs> just remembered, uh, and it stars Daniel Day Lewis as a uh, very successful dressmaker. And again, I believe the time period might be the fifties or forties. Is he like a celebrity dressmaker? Kind of? uh, well, I think he's he's uh, high couture. Like mm. I, th- I think he's you know he, he he's not just sort of making dresses in a little shop somewhere. He's he's kind of a big deal. Um, and I, I don't think he necessarily uh, is a celebrity himself. I don't think he like he cultivates a sort of celebrity lifestyle. But I, he seems actually quite removed from that and, and, and to himself. But he he falls in love with a younger woman and. They have a relationship, and you, you, you can see the trailer. Um, I'm sure you can see it on various uh, websites at this point. But uh, you get the impression that uh, you know, not everything goes goes so swimmingly well. It, it sounds like it might bathe in the atmosphere of the master a bit in the sort of period piece, and uh, it, it could. Though I, I don't get the impression it, it has that same. I don't think it has a, the same kind of political agenda that that maybe the master did. Yeah, um, and I. You know, this is always subject to change when actors say this, but apparently this is Daniel Day Lewis's last, last film, and he's actually the guy who you know took off for three years to learn how to make shoes. Uh, now says that he might want to go to dressmaking. Ah, well, there you go. And you know he'll probably be really, really good at it or something. So where do you stand on Paul Thomas Anderson in general? Uh, I am a uh, shameless devotee. Yeah. Um, which isn't to say that I love all of his movies equally, or that I can't see any any weaknesses in what he does. Um, you know, and I can frankly I can understand people who who say you know angrily how much they hate Punch Drug Love or you know Boogie Nights was his only good movie or, or what have you. He's he's not an easy, um, especially again for American audiences. He's not necessarily an, an easy guy to embrace. His films, I should say, aren't necessarily. Um, easy to embrace but he challenges his audiences in a way that you don't see a lot of um american directors get get to do frankly um with casts that are you know superlative and i think he's he's it's like to my mind he's kind of operating on a different plane from a lot of certainly from a lot of studio directors and some of that to be to be fair to all the other studio directors, he's given a huge amount of, of leeway that a lot of other directors don't get. But uh, I think he's, I think he's pretty brilliant, and yeah. uh, I don't know, I have no idea where he goes in his career. Um, he's done different things, and you know, every movie seems like it's getting closer to something else, if you know what I mean. So I don't know where he ultimately ends up, but that's that's the kind of part of the joy and the excitement of seeing uh, an artist of, of his caliber you don't know where he's going next and you, it's going to be a fascinating sort of journey to follow when uh the, the hardest i've ever been hit by a death of a uh, someone i was i didn't know or was related to was was kubrick yeah. and the big the big thing to me of course about that is we will never get another stanley kubrick movie and that was just such a devastating devastating thing to me um so not that not that i equate anderson and kubrick but it but of 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 american directors working today he's he's one of the guys one of the directors male or female that that i think is is i'm most excited to see kind of what he's what he's coming out with next do you have a favorite of his of his films don't know if i could choose an exact favorite uh the ending is the ending is kind of problematic, I guess, in, in various ways. Uh, 
and of course now I'm totally blanking Magnolia? on the title. Yeah, Magnolia. <laughs> when you say that the <laughs> ending is is is, is problematic. Is, uh, Magnolia it works on on so many different weird levels all at once, and it, it has this. I mean, it, you, to go to go uh, to to your uh, you know sort of music idea, it plays like this long, complicated um, orchestral piece that that builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and keeps building and, and you know to the audience you know like almost to the breaking point, and then it releases the frogs on us, <laughs> and the the sort of insanity of that and the fact now there's no way on earth this is true. But he has said multiple times in interviews that he had no thought of the Bible or biblical plagues whatsoever, <laughs> that he had read somewhere, somehow, that there actually had been a rain of frogs, I think in Brazil maybe or something, and that's what he was working from. But in any event... It, that, was the, that was the only way I could put it in any context that made sense. It was the, the rain of frogs. Like, oh, this is you know a biblical rain that's raining down on these people of L.A. and they're, you know... But which makes at least a certain amount of sense. Yeah, yeah. He claims that's not yeah. you know he wasn't thinking of that whatsoever. Um, but but the that the whole sort of pace of it and that's it's something he also explores a little bit I think in Punch Drunk Love like the soundtrack to Punch Drunk Love is really interesting and and adds so much to the film in ways that you you don't totally consciously recognize it. I'm, I'm trying to remember who is it, who did the soundtrack. It's um. It's Radiohead. It's Johnny. Oh, Johnny Greenwood. Greenwood. I, be- yeah. I believe that's that's the first film he did with Johnny Greenwood. Uh-huh. I believe. I enjoyed his "There Might Be Blood" soundtrack. I thought that was really worked well with the film. Well, and, and in that sense, that sense you can make a ne- uh, connection to Kubrick. I think because Kubrick was, I mean, he was one of the original like sound, uh, you know, music synthesizers. We'll say, you know, how many. How many bits of music did Kubrick use in his films that have since become iconic for the exact kind of imagery that he used it for? Does, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. You know, you I, I always think of Kubrick and think who put more iconic images into the, the, the world's imagination. When you think of each each of his films comes with some, at least one, like incredible visual motif that is. And carried on, and whether it's Slim Pickens riding the bomb down, or Jack Nicholson sticking his face through the door, um, it, it's, it's shocking how how far those images have traveled. Well, and 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 certainly, if you look at Clockwork Orange or Two Thousand and One, how he's wedded specific pieces of music to specific moments in a way that you can't, like once once that connection's made, you can't un, undo them. Yeah. You know, uh, that to me is is a little. I, I don't. I don't think Anderson has done that because he doesn't use, you know, uh, created pieces. You know, he has soundtracks uh, written expressly for his work. Well, I guess not so much in Boogie Nights, but he he uses music in a way that that subliminally kind of attacks your your sense of the film. Yeah. And and I do mean to say attacks because Punch Drunk Love. I had to watch it twice. In two days, because I couldn't, I, I couldn't figure it out. Why, you know, it's it's this kind of movie. Why does it give me this weird dissonant feeling? It's the music, yeah. and he he weds the two together in such a way that you can't separate them, and it really adds a strange and compelling element to, you know, a, a, an unconventional but but somewhat standard issue, you know, misbegotten love story. 
Yeah, for me, thinking about the music, I think my, the, the film for him that really works best for me is The Master. Yeah. And uh, the, it's, the music that sticks in my head from that is uh, that weird, dreamy, I think uh, the Joaquin Phoenix character is drunk and he's wandering around the apartment store and it's playing that sort of music that used to be everywhere, you know, back, uh, you know, in the... In the, in the uh, in the day and and that sort of adds this weird uh, you know dissonant you know quality to to the darkness that is going on well i, I know in punch and Arc love he he intentionally makes the music just a little bit too loud hmm. and it it is if you if you watch it again it, it's throughout the film i mean there, there might be a few scenes that don't that doesn't you know that don't have music in the background but for the most part there's this kind of odd dissonant music and to the point where it sometimes kind of drowns out some of the dialogue or if it doesn't directly do it at least makes you say wait what did he say you know like can't we turn this down a little bit and no that's that's kind of the point we can't turn it down it's interesting that film really seems like an out you know an outlier in in his uh, in his list of films uh, starring adam sandler uh, and uh but when I hear people talk about it, it seems like it's it's one of the films people come back to most often to sort of dissect. It's a, well, like I said, the first time I saw it, I said, "Eh, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't know about this." And I thought about it for twenty four hours, and then like the next day, I was like, "You know what? I, I got to see that again." And I watched it again. I was like, "Okay, no, it's genius." Okay, <laughs> I didn't, and you know, to, to, I, I I do the same thing with the Coen Brothers a lot. The first time I see any Coen Brothers movie, the first time I saw The Big Lebowski, I was like, "Well." He doesn't really do anything. I mean, he ends up in the same place as he was, you know, and then you, you see it again. You know, I, I'm always afraid to write reviews of their stuff because I'm always like, yeah, it was pretty good, but I, I wouldn't put it in their upper echelon. And then six months later, if I've seen it two or three more times, I'm like, oh, no, I was an idiot. No, of course you put, no, no, it's, you know, it's really good. It's interesting for for me the the Coen brothers they're directors who I've grown up with in a way and you know getting first you know more seriously into film in the early eighties and seeing them an early trip into Philadelphia for me was seeing Blood Simple at the Ritz. And uh, they made films about making films in a way that as I got more into films, it became interesting. Uh, I, I really, uh, like a lot of people, when they buy, really felt like they bottomed out at that certain point, I think in the 90s, with the, what was, well, not irreconcilable differences, what was the name of the the one with the George with Clooney? With George Clooney, yeah. Um it isn't your right. No, you're is it? right. It's, yeah, that's the one. It's with... Something very close to that. <laughs> I'll look it up as you're talking. Um, there, uh, that there was, a, and and there was the um, the Lady Killers with with, with and I, I was really getting to the point like I don't think I need to see every Coen Brothers film. But then uh, they really bounced back for me with the No Country for Old Men, and uh, even though they've had mixed reviews for a lot of their films since, to me they've really. Uh, the you know the swamp gas has burned off their eyes and they've they've really got a clarity and uh, an excitement. Uh, I'm not sure they've you know I I feel they're they're really near their peaks as as filmmakers. Well, so okay, so let's see here. Um, they did Lady Killers, Intolerable Cruelty. Intolerable is, cruelty is and the fact that we didn't remember the title. Catherine Zeta Jones yep, is she the other that star? Is correct. Yeah. Also, one of the least interesting stars they've had in their film, I think. That's true, and I believe it was an existing script that they kind of punched up. I don't, I don't uh-huh. believe that's a, an entirely original Cohen script, which is similar to the Lady Killers, where they took. I mean, maybe they that maybe that was their game. Let's try and make someone else's movie. And I think that didn't work out so well. So they did No Country uh, in two thousand seven, 
And then one of my all-time favorite films of theirs, A Serious Man, yeah. in 2009, um, with the incomparable Michael Stuhlbarg. And, and it's the first time they really dealt heavily with a Jewish character, even though they, you know... Or of a Jewish background, growing up in well, I think uh, Barton Fink almost has to be Jewish, but I don't. I don't guess it's, it's a much much is really made of. But that. I think the first rabbi who's appeared yes, in their film, that's I think fair. In a serious man. That's fair. I really enjoyed that. I really loved uh, uh, Burn Before Reading, which you know, I, I really. Uh, that's that's another one that the more times you see it, the more you're like, no, actually, that's really good. That's, yeah, that's sharp. Uh, Lewin Davis is another one of my favorites of theirs i don't know how you feel about oh, it, being, being a music guy well being a fan of that era I, I felt like they were really right on and really did a great job of capturing uh, you know something from that um I, I have to give a quick plug since we mentioned since i mentioned michael stilbarg i have to i have to say he's he's uh he's been in a couple films already this year but the film that that hasn't come out yet that i think it's gonna be coming out late november call me by your name which is a really deeply moving uh, romance film set in the 80s in northern Italy. Stuhlbarg plays professor, I think, uh, professor of archaeology, who spends his summers in a beautiful villa in, in, in northern Italy with his Italian wife and his, his son, his teenage son, played by Timothy Chalamet. And every year, Stuhlbarg's character has an intern come from America to help him uh, document uh, the antiquities that, that he's, he's working on. And this particular year, the intern is played by Army Hammer. And Army Hammer is this gregarious, life-of-the-party kind of guy. And the Timothy Chalamet character falls deeply, deeply in love with him. And eventually that love is reciprocated. And it, it's sort of the, 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 the film is about their romance and the sort of after effects of it. And I won't give anything else away. It, it is a beautiful and, and deeply moving film. The whole thing about Michael Stolbarg is he, he's a side character. I mean, he's, he's the father and, you know, he, he's here and there. But he gets a monologue near the end of the film to comfort his, his heartbroken son and it is it is just one for the ages. It is it is so absolutely pitch perfect, wonderful. I'm not the kind of uh, theater goer, especially at, at film festivals, that I'm going to spontaneously clap just for the hell of it. And I didn't in this case, but goddamn, did I want to just stand up and start cheering? Because not, not again, not that what he's saying is, is some celebratory thing. It's just he is so good. In it, and and the the whole film is beautiful and, and and interesting, and you know at various times you know funny and and what have you. In the last maybe 15, 20 minutes, there's that monologue, and then there's the actual last shot of the film, um, which the credits roll over. And these, I mean, to my mind, these are two of the most powerful and potent things I've seen on on screens this year. But anyway, shout out to Michael Stuhlbarg if you get a chance to uh, He was the star of a serious man, right? And he was the star of a serious man. Yeah, he's he's always very, very good and he's he's been unheralded, you know, uh for years and years and years, he, he's a guy who's always good in everything he does, but he's never gotten the, the, the attention that he's really deserved. And I would hope this I hope this film in general gets a huge amount of attention and that he in particular gets gets his due finally. Is this something you saw in Toronto? Uh, Sundance. Sundance. Actually, yeah, you've yeah. been out. For, yeah, I, that's you know, very jealous of you getting to go out and, and cover these festivals and really getting the, the jump on these films. But uh, is yes, uh, Sundance this year. Uh, you know, all these things are crapshoots. You know, Toronto 
I saw the Flora Project, which I really loved, and, and a bunch of other films that I liked. But you know, from from year to year, sometimes you you get lucky, and sometimes you don't. Sundance this year, I happened to see two of my favorite films. You know, in January, I saw two two of the films I knew this this is going to be you know top three for me. Um, Call Me by Your Name, and then A Ghost Story, which I still I think is probably going to be my film of the year. Well, tell me about that. A Ghost Story. Yeah. Um, it's a very um, it's very hard to describe it. I will, I'll say that uh, it's a David Lowry film. Um, the director who had, had previously pre- previously done Ain't Them Body Saints, which I have to say I didn't really like when I first saw it. I, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it now uh, after having seen a ghost story. Um, but so I think last summer or maybe the summer before he came out, he did uh, Pete's Dragon. Oh, that, yeah. that you know, kids movie that, I that was did see that. You know, I mean, a reasonably good, you know, big budget studio film. He used his uh, salary from doing Pete's Dragon to make this film. Um, it stars uh, Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, who also both star in Eight Them Body Saints. Um, they play a young married couple living in a ranch style home. It's never specified, but I believe we are somewhere in in Texas. Uh, like kind of suburban Texas, and and, and I, I, you can't spoil this movie. Like you, I, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna say things that sound like spoilers. This is not a film that relies on on plot twists. Trust me. Um, so within the first uh, maybe 15 minutes of the film, Casey Affleck dies in a car crash right in front of the house, and we see him um, at the hospital. We see you know the sheet over his body, and his wife comes in to identify. The body, I guess, is the morgue. The, the wife comes in to identify the body, and she leaves. And the camera stays on on uh, the sheet. And then Affleck just rises up in the sheet. So the rest of the film, he is, in fact, like the ghost with the eye holes cut out. You know, like Charlie Brown, Halloween, like with, with the eye holes cut out. And he, he has to take it on faith that it is Casey Affleck underneath that sheet. Uh, that's true. Although I, I believe I've, I've read interviews which says that he is he is in all but like one of the shots or, or something, <laughs> but he's silent for the rest of the film. And uh, this ghost figure is given a choice. We are to understand this is all silent, but we we understand that he's like a portal kind of opens up that he could presumably go into. You don't know what it's going to be, but you know presumably that's the afterlife of some kind. And he turns the corner from that and just goes back home and we are to understand he wants to be with his wife you know why why wouldn't he he loves his wife so the film becomes him because when when he gets there he realizes and he you know trudges over there in his sheet uh she can't see him of course and he can't really interact with her he can't speak he doesn't have any any means of connecting with her other than to just observe. So he just watches her and he watches her go through these various stages of grief. Um, and, and, and time starts to get kind of compressed. So we see this over the, you know, this is over the course of months or what have you. And she eventually moves out and he's stuck there. And he's sort of stuck observing what comes next. So this other, you know, this, this uh, Latino family um, moves in and, and then they move out and then another family moves in and um, there's a scene about midway through the film where there there's a, a party happening you don't know who's living there or who's not but there's a fairly big party and you know people talking and drinking whatever and uh, Will Oldham is there and does a whole monologue basically about the 
the futility of the idea of human legacy. That, you know, his point basically is, you know, we think, you know, the best of us, the best artists leave leave a mark in some significant way. And we think that's, you know, like Shakespeare, you know, it's transcended 400 years. He's like, that's not even a blip of a blip in, 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 a, in a real time frame. And that, you know, whatever we do, you know, we die and 99.999% of it's forgotten, you know, before we've even, you know, been buried. <laughs> And those of us who have, you know, like some, you know, he said, you know, some piece of music like Ode to Joy or something, that survives up until, you know, a certain point. But eventually the sun's going to explode and it's going to wipe out everything. You know, like basically there's no point. There's just no point in anything and drink up. <laughs> and uh, so, the, so the, I, guess what, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is the film is, is, is a sort of philosophical treatise and which which sounds like it could be very dry and boring and whatever, but it is it is really eerily deeply moving, and uh, I won't I won't go to any other uh, sort of uh, there aren't really much in the way of plot dynamics anyway, but it's kind of takes on that question I guess to a certain degree, and you can either come out of that movie feeling like I've never felt more pointless in my life, <laughs> or you can feel like maybe there are other edges of things that the film hints at that that might might give us at least a little bit of hope. It, it leaves it up to us. It, it's a kind of um, it, it's a it's a kind of esoteric ending, which you can interpret various ways. I've asked I've asked various people how they interpret it, and, and frankly, everyone has come up with a slightly different interpretation from mine. But I think that's fine. Um, but it but it is a strangely moving, compelling film. It is not, despite its title, anything like a horror movie. There's no scary parts. There, there's not really a, more of a plot than I've already indicated. It's not a film that you go to. It wouldn't be a good date movie unless, <laughs> unless you guys are you know PhD candidates in philosophy or something. Um, but but I, I just found it absolutely transfixing. And I, it's you know the, you know this feeling when you walk out of a movie that's really bombed you in this way. Like I, I swear to God, I, I, I walked out. This was in January in, in, in Park City, and I, I walked across this frozen parking lot, going back to my stumbling back to my my hotel room, and I, I honestly was like, I don't, <laughs> I, I like my, my my motor functions were, were not like operating correctly. <laughs> it, it it affected me that deeply, and I, I saw it again. It's obviously not going to have quite the same powerful effect if you see it more than once, but it came out over the summer. Obviously, it's not the kind of movie that's going to get a huge amount of, uh, you know, wide uh, wide response. I think, but it, it's it's a it's a really really remarkable film. And going back to your, what you were talking about, independent film. I mean, Lowry went completely out on a limb with this, and apparently, he was having complete anxiety attacks throughout the shooting <laughs> of the film. I mean, the movie's made so confidently. There's there's so much going on there that you you you, you know, I had this vision of him just. You know, almost like in a trance, like, oh, you know, we will do this and we will do that. That doesn't make any sense. Shut up. You know, we're going to do it this way. But no, apparently he was really, really anxiety stricken. He's like, this could be the stupidest movie ever made. And in fact, I mean, the, the part that most people start tuning me out on is when I say, no, he's actually a ghost in a sheet. Now, I've studied this. I have studied this sheet, and I can tell you, there's. Because of the placement of the eyes, the eyes are kind of imploring looking. It's just black circles, but they're sort of imploring. There's almost like, like if you look at a Labrador's face, they have sort of eyebrows. It's There's a sort of eyebrow effect. 
he's got this kind of extended wrinkle in the front that this is a little far out there but it but it makes me think of like a baby elephant trunk like there's something about the guy in the sheet there's something so imploring and sad just to look at just to well, look you at can him. really sculpt a sheet in a way as well i mean i i would imagine he really knew what he was effect he was getting from that the way the sheet hung you know? yeah I, I i'm i'm sure that took a lot more effort than you would think here's what i would suggest for anyone who's the least bit interested or intrigued by the idea of this, watch the trailer. The trailer will give you much more of a sense of the vibe of the film and how it operates than, than anything I'm saying to you. Watch the trailer. If the trailer seems interesting to you and you don't mind a sort of non-linear film, it's relatively short. It's about an hour and a half. By all means, give it a try. And The Ghost is the title. A Ghost Story. A Ghost Story. Yeah, about as far away from Patrick Swayze's ghost as, as you can get. <laughs> In the fall here of 2017, a, a film that's gotten a lot of uh, attention and a lot of debate is the sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2046, directed by Dennis... Oh, 24... I, I keep on saying 2046, and 2046 is a, a wonderful sci-fi film from Wong Kar Wai, which I think would serve as a great double feature. I mean, it certainly uh, traffics in ennui like, like uh, Blade Runner does. But yeah, 2049 is where this... Blade Runner takes place with Ryan Goslin. Uh, and it's gotten a, a lot of positive reviews. It got a lot of rave reviews. It, it apparently has not done what they expected at the box office domestically. Talking about why did Blade Runner bomb? Uh, what was your, your your critical assessment of Dennis Veneux? Is that how you say his name? Veneux, I believe, yeah. yeah. Uh, well. The director, Dennis Veneux. I, I think he was the right man for the job. I think they probably could not have got a better director to sort of follow up Ridley Scott's visual sense. I am a big fan of the first film. Part of what I really liked about the film very, very much couldn't be recreated. When I was writing my review, it just made me start to think about all the, the moments and scenes in the original that sort of stick in my head. And some of them are really honestly just interesting line readings or an interesting, you know, view of a character or a shot of this. Blade Runner, when I first saw it, uh, I think it was at 82? I you saw know. it on a double bill with Grease 2. When it, <laughs> it, 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 it did so poorly the first week, they gave it a double a double bill That's Grease almost, 2. That's almost as bad as double bill I watched. I had to sit through A Pretty Woman to see a sneak preview of Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> anyway... Uh, so, so when Blade Runner first came out, I, I went to see it with my friends. Like, it came out of nowhere for us, much, much as Alien had actually. Like, we, we didn't know what to, you know, we, we couldn't anticipate that. But Scott, uh, in both of those films, actually, but certainly in, in Blade Runner, he adds such a weird and 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 powerful sense of history to his 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 sets and and and, and the vibe of the film. And in Alien, it works because it, you know, that first opening shot where the camera's kind of crawling through the uh, through the Nostromo, and, and you can just see the sort of debris of, of crew members, you know, leaving stuff lying around, and you know, helmets kind of strewn about, and it it has this really powerful effect of feeling lived in, and for a sci-fi film, that's incredible. Like, yeah, I think we were coming off the the Kubrick two thousand one sort of very sterile future where, you know, Blade Runner was I, I think 
maybe the next major sort of sci-fi design, you know, redesigner alien uh, as well, where that felt like a tanker, like a dirty tanker that they were in more than a, a, a svelte spaceship. Well, and, and the city, the, the future sort of Los Angeles that he creates in Blade Runner, I think on some level, you know, we were talking about CGI and, and how it kind of works in your brain, um, you know, on a sort of deep level. It either, you know, works or doesn't. I think you, you understand watching that movie when it came out. That's not the way Los Angeles was in 1982, but it very much felt like, yeah, that, that does feel a little bit inevitable that it's going to be tight and compressed and dirty and rainy and, and just miserable because that's, you know, if you, you look at the buildup of the Industrial Revolution from, you know, the, the turn of the century to now, like that, that's kind of what we're always heading towards. Dare, sort of dare, I, even, dare I even say more Asians, you know, it, it was... Uh, yeah. A very Asian populated future that they were in, and, uh, that's, and, and, and that seemed like a, a an American creep in a way, or whatever. You that's know? true, and and the way advertising was just so completely, you know, vast and giant, and this recurring sort of uh, animation of you know the, the woman you know taking a bite of something and, and smiling. Yeah. I mean, look at Times Square. I mean, yeah, or modern day Tokyo. As yeah, well. these yeah. these things really did have a basis in a kind of strange. Uh, way with with what we could certainly imagine the future to be this wasn't hover cars and jet boots you know this was something that felt a lot more like oh no yeah this is probably and with its influence i'm sure it it influenced design to you know bring that future about in a way as well well the the 1984 ad that ridley scott did for for apple you know that's kind of using the, the same sort of idea um anyway so i i was a big fan of the first film and the second film um, I, I think it was an honorable attempt. Um, I don't believe it needed to be two hours and 43 minutes long. Um, I, I did feel, we talked a little bit earlier, I agreed with you that... Uh, How long does it take to get to the heart of an android? Right. But the, the sentimentality of it w- was was not uh, terribly effective, I felt. And, and it's not what the original film you know, hinged on as well, to make it a story of a father and a daughter to me just seemed cheap in a way. Yes, and frankly, I'm I am really not a fan of, of the you know the, the Sean Young scene. I am not a fan of CGIing in you know characters f- you know from our childhood. In you know <laughs> suddenly I'm seeing Grand Moff Tarkin like he's the Grand Moff Tarkin one for me from yeah. the Star Wars was uh, and my my kids said yeah he looked like an action figure like he, he yes, wasn't even he aware of the whole thing but, but but even if he didn't even if he looked realistic I'm just no no don't yeah. do that you yeah. can't you can't do that truthfully at, at least with an older audience you can't do that and not jar them out completely out of what you're what you're trying to do with the scene. Yeah. That said, I think she looked better than any other version I've seen of somebody trying to do this. That's true enough. I yeah. mean, as a technical achievement, yes, it, it, it is quite... E- even greater than Hologram Tupac. <laughs> <laughs> That's, if that can be believed, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Jared Leto, I, I would have to say, I'm not really sure what the hell he was doing in that movie. Yeah, he, was, he was the extra weight that could have been cut right out, I think, yeah, having... You know the blind scheming uh, Jared Leto didn't seem to really go much of anywhere for me. Uh, at its best, there was a there was a mood to the film that that seemed real. I think I opened my review that I wrote of it saying that you know thank goodness it feels like a real film and not just some you know uh, group th- 
think uh, franchise bait, you know, Hollywood uh, manufactured uh, piece. It really felt like, well, they re- gave it over to a filmmaker who had an idea and crafted a film. And uh, it, even that's something to be thanked at this point in our uh, franchise laden landscape. That's true. But, but I did point out in my review at the same time, there's no reason to make that movie. There really isn't, no. uh, you know. You of course there is. It's hey, we, we can we can. We've make gone some more thirty-five money years without without that movie. And 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 the and the thing is, the truth is, there are films that were designed. There are a lot of films, especially in the sort of older days of of, of filmmaking, they were designed to be one-offs. There they they weren't meant to be sequelized. They weren't meant to have other parts to them. You know, personally, Alien is one of my all-time favorite films. I would be happy if they'd left that one alone. But, you know, Aliens is a perfectly good action movie. But, you know, every subsequent one has just made me more and more annoyed and, and, and disheartened and whatever. And Blade Runner, it is impossible. It would, as I said earlier, it would have been impossible to really capture what made the first film so compelling as it was because it was unexpected and it was no one knew what to make of it you can't really do that again like once you've made that movie and you you go back to that world you do know what to make of it it's the same world you know it, it it's not going to have that same sort of slap in the face effect and i i i do wish that that some of the studio execs could just say no like you know the whole joke about about doing a sequel to the graduate you know that that was in uh, uh, robert Altman's the player <laughs> Yeah, you could do a sequel to The Graduate. You don't need to. Like, the movie answers all the questions you would ever, ever have. Leave it be. Like, no, The Godfather 3 doesn't ruin the legacy of the first two Godfathers. You can just not watch it. You know, that's fine, too. And and God knows most of us do avoid it. Maybe like the, the recommended way to see that is not watching it. Absolutely. <laughs> but but that, that, that still doesn't absolve them of, you know, that this idea that, that they can just kind of take any property that, that has... You know, becoming sort of a cult favorite, like we're gonna have Donnie Darko too. You know, or like it's kind of an insult, honestly, to to the original film. Like saying to the original film, eh, you know, there were still questions that we could have answered. Is he replicant or not? You know, that kind of thing. And you know, it's not the end of the world to give us questions that don't have answers. Our lives are filled with with questions without answers. That's the whole point of human existence, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Don't, that's what kills me about the alien movies. No one's asking these questions. I'm not, I don't care where the alien came from. That's the whole point. The less I know about it, the better. And yeah, yeah. You know, I was reading this this uh, this week. Vulture did a, a, a really interesting piece on the, the oral history of David S. Pumpkins. You know, the Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is fine, and that's cool, and they seem like, you know... Uh, they understand that the less is known about this character, the better. But the David S. Pump, the whole thing about David S. Pumpkins is you don't know what the hell is going on. It's a whole joke of the sketch. So the more you keep talking about it, the more you keep saying, "Well, actually, he was, you know, he was born in Illinois, and his parents were, you know, this." For the love of God, no one wants to know that. That's that's ruining the joke. It's, it's the magician saying, "Oh, here's how I did the trick." Just in case, in case anyone was freaked out, here's how he did it. <laughs> Back to jazz. The, the 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 slogan is, "You explain it, you drain it." Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. And and I I think that's the not to you know not to typify the the Hollywood suit mentality, but that's that's really how they see it. They don't see things 
in, in those kinds of terms. They see things as, hey, here's a known property. Here's an existing brand. We can, you know, take this property and make such and such and, and, and get like a four point, you know, you know, adv adv advantage to their Q scores of the, you know, like, good God. Just have respect, at least have respect for the archives of your studio and say, we won't touch this movie. There's not going to be the African Queen 2. <laughs> you know, we're not going to do the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, pardieu. Like, leave some things alone. Just don't remake them. Don't change them. Don't don't add more junk to them. Citizen Kane is great, but what's the sled's backstory? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's where'd that get manufactured? <laughs> Who wrote on that sled over the years? You know, we could see Jerry Orson Welles together, <laughs> find someone to do his voice. Uh, great. A, a film that I thought was a good example of this, and, and the film that a lot of my friends liked and was a huge financial success, I guess probably a critical success too, is the Stephen King It uh, remake, or, or, or you know, what, what you might want to call it. But that was a film to me that really was desperate to have a reason to be remade. Like, I, I didn't. Don't think that, you know, in, in the filmmaking, they came up with a new idea they needed to explore. And it was basically hitting all those, you know, scare points or whatever. And uh, what did you think of, of the film? Well, as it happened, it that whole phenomenon happened while I was at Toronto. Oh. So I, I, I did not see you it. You haven't caught it. I, I have not seen it. Haven't it, caught it, it. Does, <laughs> does seem like one of those films I will have to see before the year is done just because it, it has become, you know, a, a sort of touchstone of, of pop culture i mean also it can be said that because of our churning the churning nature of pop culture it might be a big deal for you know four days and yeah, then yeah. we'll never be mentioned or heard from again and that see now that goes back to to kind of what i was saying earlier blade runner the original you know has survived in in you know obviously for 40 years or, or what have you uh 40 35 years 35 years um in, in part because of it, the way it, it sort of blew people's minds and, and opened their eyes and so forth. The sequel, even people who liked it, and I have no problem with people really liking it, like that movie's not going to, 10 years from now, we're not going to talk about Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that and that's the trade-off, I think. I mean, studios, studios can think in terms of, well, this will make us a few bucks right here now, and 10 years from now, no one's going to remember anything about this, or... You know, we're going to make this movie. Who knows how it's going to do at first? I mean, Blade Runner, did the original, didn't do well in the box office at all. It's just word of mouth got, you know, bigger and bigger. And I would love to see Hollywood do more of those films. This is Spielberg's call to action. Let's do smaller films with smaller budgets and, you know, make more of them. Well, that's often where the experimentation is. And I... I, I uh come back to my own little metaphor on this one where I feel like, you know, part of this whole corporate model is about only worrying about the apples and thinking the roots have nothing to do with the tree. Yeah. You know, yeah. like to, to, you know, foment the sort of, uh, the sort of creativity on a smaller level. Those are a lot of the ideas that do get expanded into larger films later where they've really gotten out of that business the same way the, uh, around 2000, they talk about the, uh, the record industry deciding they were only going to make boys to men and, and sync and go for big blockbusters. And they weren't going to have, smaller acts that needed you know a few albums to get on their feet or whatever you know. what they what they aren't taking into account is all these known properties you know and, and let's let's start let's just take uh indiana jones that was created out of thin air i mean obviously it's it's very much in the vein of of 40s you know pulp serials and it, it, it's not like it, it was made out of whole cloth 
but that character and and, and the the sort of style of those films um it wasn't and, based on any other property the way no and and, and neither was star wars you know i mean of course star again star wars was like a legacy of things but star wars was was something unto itself even a, a film uh you know like the matrix was something unto itself and hollywood keeps sort of telling us no 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 you don't want new things you want stuff that you've already heard of so let's do alien versus predator you know because that combines these two things together let's do video game movies let's do you know these sequels to films that you you might not have wanted but here you know you're going to have them anyway it's more important to them that that people recognize it um and they kind of in that way they sort of burn through the property well eventually they really i mean they're already kind of scraping the barrel right <laughs> well even things that have like name recognition like the lone ranger like everybody knows of the lone ranger but does anybody what does people have connection with anymore it's certainly not the the clayton moore you know tv show it's not a it's not the William Fraker uh, legend of the Lone Ranger, you know, but so we all know it, but I don't think it moves too many people. Well, and, and they're, they're doing the same thing to us with, you know, the Smurfs movies and then the, you know, like kids movies are, are brutal for this. You know, they'll just, you know, good God, the freaking Transformers and, and, <laughs> and you know, G.I. Joe and, and all this stuff. I, I mean, I understand their reasoning, I understand their logic, but like if no new stuff is ever being created for these generations to kind of pick up on you know i listen i mean you and i are of this generation where all this stuff actually happened yeah. and i remember um well, I, I won't go into this whole thing but I, I i so despised uh return of the jedi that i vowed never to watch another lucas star wars movie so i i never watched the next three really I, I you never watched them <laughs> and i don't regret it for a second but anyway there, there is much better, more, uh, you know, profitable ways to spend your time than those films. If I, if I, whenever my my son loves to ask these types of questions, like, what's the worst movie ever made? And like, it's hard to to get past. Uh, is it what's the second one in that? Uh, Attack of the Clones. Attack of the Clones. So. Hard to make a worse movie than than that, especially with the, the amount of money that was made and just how it foils every dramatic opportunity and it, it's you know CGI to oblivion. Like for me, that might be the worst cinematic experience you could have in a movie well sleep is more engaging to me the andy warhol <laughs> film well so so the, the thing is uh you know again i didn't go to these movies but i gathered they were horrible and what really bummed me out was so those were like what early early aughts like 2002 yeah. you know i think 99 was the first one or 98 anyway i thought to myself for this generation of Kids, you know, the, the age I was when Star Wars came out, I was uh, the perfect, you know, I was 11, I think, or 10 when, when Star Wars came out. Like, this is their Star Wars. Like, this yeah. is what they get. I got Star Wars. I got Empire Strikes <laughs> Back. I got Indiana, you know, the, the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The other films, not so much. But, I, you know, I got Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, I got these movies as they happened and as they came out. And... You know, each one of these movies was just, you know, wow, this is amazing. Oh, my God, this is amazing, amazing. Like, all these subsequent generations, it's like they're being fed the same thing over and over again. Like, it, you you can certainly relate to this in music. Like, when when we were growing up in the 70s, 80s, like, everything was about the 60s. Everything was about, you know, Zeppelin and the Stones. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, all these, you know, perfectly good bands that just got rammed down our throats, you know, year after year after year to the point where, you know, people started asking where the hell's our music, you know, and yeah. punk comes out of that and, 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 you know, new wave, you know, some finally like stuff kind of started coming out that, that, that sort of changed, you know, gave us something of our own. These guys are just getting 
force, you know, ram-fed all this stuff from our childhoods and just a terrible, shitty version of it. You for, know? Me, for me, I remember it just seemed like it was never going to end. And, and uh, you know, uh, I, I was pretty heavily conscious of films by the early 70s that were coming out and, and you know, Bush Cassidy, The Sundance Kid, or, you know, all these things, uh, The Poseidon Adventure. And I always felt like every summer I was going to see something I've never seen before. And how were they going to do it? How did they do that at all, you know? And uh, that seemed to last, you know, into the into the 80s a bit. And then, you know, I remember that, that whole creeping thing of, uh, like, there's 17 sequels coming out this summer. And uh, yeah. that number just kept going up and up. And now, you know, the, I would say probably 90% of those big summer blockbuster films are based on some other property in some way. That, I mean, and again, you know what the studio's strategy here is, is brand awareness. You know, that it, it saves us in marketing costs or it improves the, you know, again, the, the Q rating or, or what have you of, of a given property. But there's nothing new. It feels like there's very little that's new, especially in that realm and then the sort of blockbuster, you know, kids realm. I mean, Pixar has done some stuff that I, I very much appreciate that, you know, m- movies that they kind of made unto themselves, which which is given, yeah. you know, certainly our kids the age they are. I mean, my daughter has loved, you know, a lot of Pixar movies, but even Pixar is like, here's Cars 3, you know, here's... <laughs> You know, Finding Dory or, or whatever, and 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 there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that. Well, is is it really heroic to be driving cars at this point? Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, I I kind of haven't watched. I have not managed to watch any of the Cars movies, but but I'm just saying, at least they're in the in the same sort of time frame. Yeah. It's it's not like like I don't know what the equivalent would have been for us, but like in the '70s, if right, like if they'd said, okay, well here's a, here's our remake of Casablanca. You know, yeah. like there was that King Kong remake, the Dino De Laurentiis thing that got shellacked, yeah. you know, uh-huh. I mean, other than uh, <laughs> there was a Casablanca TV show with David Soul. <laughs> OK, well, <laughs> didn't go anywhere either. Well, or, but, or yeah, I mean, I, but these are, you know, random one offs, not but, really but at least, a, a trend but, of the way it is. At, at know, least now. there was the sense of, hey, you know, we're going to allocate some money to like to new things, to new stuff. And we're going to we're going to see what hits and what doesn't. And there was a kind of um, innocence, maybe, to, to that process where they're like, you know, when 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 Star Wars came out again, like Lucas didn't think this is going to be, you know, the the biggest, you know, franchise in the history of, of entertainment. Like I. Uh, yeah, they said it was a real revelation later on when he realized, oh, the toys are actually going to make more well, money that, than the film. That, of course, was his. That was his big thing. Is he? Yeah. He didn't take uh, a. He didn't take a salary. He took the. The uh, residuals, <laughs> which the studio was like, oh, sure, you want them, you got them. And Ron Howard had something very negative to say about, about uh, Lucas, which, uh, you know, he, he didn't make it too barbed when he said it, but he, he definitely left the point out there. He said when he was making. Uh, American Graffiti, he talked to George Lucas and said, I'm getting ready to direct my first film. You know, do you have any uh, any uh, wisdom you want to pass on? And he said, yeah, you know, I'm starting to work into animation now. And animation is so much better than film because you can just control everything about them. You don't have to deal with actors. And he said, for somebody who was getting ready to act in a feature film for him, hearing he didn't want to deal with actors was odd. (laughs) But for me, that's a a deep sense of of what's wrong with George Lucas as a a, a director. I, I don't think he's somebody who naturally interacts 
with people on a comfortable level. And when you look at the making of with him talking to actors, they always seem stilted and awkward. And I imagine people are intimidated by him as a master producer as well, you know. But I, I don't think he engages with actors in a way to, to pull. If you can make Ewan McGregor and, uh, and you know, Natalie Portman and uh, all those people be stiff, I, I think there's something wrong with your interpersonal directing, perhaps. He's an interesting case because as much as, and God knows how much I've railed on him for, you know, <laughs> Turn of the freaking Ewoks. Um, <laughs> Two TV movies with the Ewoks. <laughs> oh, again, you don't want. You definitely don't want to get me on that rant. But but the original Star Wars, which I've seen you know a hundred bazillion times, it's actually written pretty well, and yeah. and the characters are, are funny and engaging. They they have um, connections that make them you know interesting. You know, there's an interplay there that's actually that it's a big draw of the film actually for especially for people who weren't you know kind of science fantasy uh, types like the, the it was funny and you know and the characters were, were memorable and interesting and and what have you and you you go from the guy who wrote that screenplay to even you know return of the freaking jedi or or any of the other ones it's kind of like the way i felt about the the Wachowskis with with the first matrix film to the second one and i'm like how do you go from making a film that's like arguably one of the coolest movies you know, like of of its era, masterful film, I would say, absolutely to the most powerfully uncool thing like ever ever made. Like, how do you like? I can understand like getting stuck. Like, I'm not sure how to you know, what what to do next or something. But to make something as is really good as an action film, as good as the Matrix was, and follow that up with the the sequels. I'm like, what happened? What did they get yeah. a lobotomy? What happened to them? And it's funny they they had such sort of cultural heft. The first Matrix film did that. You're talking about there's uh, college classes ta- teaching the Matrix and stuff. It was really taking on this sort of intellectual heft. And then to you know, I, I, the rave in a cave scene is always the one for me where the rave music plays oh, right, and there's right, a big right. dance and stuff. Right. Like, Zion, what right. is Zion, what Zion is, is going like, on? What with is this? this? A, a shitty Tel Aviv club? <laughs> That's what we're. That's what humanity's come at it, to. At the point where the Blade Runner sequel had like murmurings of revolution among the un, un, unwashed masses, I'm like, this is getting close to the Matrix for me. <laughs> yeah. Be careful here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I still like that. I don't. I mean, I guess you could look at it like you know the equivalent of the, of the one-hit wonder, you know, bands that like suddenly everything just happened to come together and and you know everything conspired to make this you know this one thing really well. But just from a writing perspective, because you know, songwriting, in, as you know, you know far better than me. I mean, it involves all kinds of intricacies, not the least of which is, you know, what's the, what's the tension, you know, in the band, and, and you know, like what elements in the band kind of lead the Chemistry. the songwriter to you know to, to make that particular song at that particular moment. And I can see how that that could be. Like I just woke up one morning, I had this tune in my head, and you know, I wrote it down and so forth like writing a screenplay is not like that like even if you're burning through it it's you know several weeks and and not you know and you're going through like you know the, the pre-production the put like none of this is is easy or you know like a lightning bolt of you know like like you you cooler you know going up in a, in a drug stupor and writing xanadu or a kubla Khan. um you know n- none of that operates that way so how do you go from being like a, a fairly reasonably good screenwriter evidently and you know like a really interesting sense of of pacing and action and and, and sequences you know sequencing your your stuff to just 
abysmally bad. <laughs> abysmally bad. Like embarrassingly bad. I, I, I'm not, I don't get that. Yeah, the, 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 the seeming loss of inspiration in people can seem the most baffling. I mean, I guess that's why, you know, the people who can do it consistently and, you know, go to Paul Thomas Anderson, you have nothing else. Like he, he is definitely someone that just follows his muse wherever it goes and he trusts in it and he's not thinking, you know, oh, this is going to this is going to get me a whole bunch of attention or Oscars or this is going to, you know, I, I, you know, they're obviously trying to he's not trying to appease any fan base other than, you know, the. <laughs> whatever the, the the smattering of, of, of critics and cinephiles who really really love his stuff so it's you know it's obviously very different pressure but, but you could also say both those but in both those cases with Lucas and Wachowski they had unprecedented um, freedom like they literally could have made anything they wanted and the studios would say we will we will happily take anything you give us you know they could have done the equivalent of metal machine music for you know for three hours with the matrix. Which probably would have been better than what we got, and and the studios would have said, you know, that's fine, great, you know, yeah. do that. Before we wrap up here, I was surprised really looking back over over the the past year, and I'm I'm somebody who, you know, has really spoken out against the whole blockbuster syndrome and American film in general. I've been much more interested in European film and you know some interesting indies as as time has gone on. But I have to admit, I think the film that I got most joy out of this year, uh, going to the box office, blindsided by it, is Spider Man. The uh, the new Spider-Man oh, film, the Homecoming. The Homecoming. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. What What was your take on that? Well, uh, I I definitely grew up a comics nerd, um, so I I do I do have a, a at least I mean at this point it's been kind of burned out of me, but I I used to certainly have a sort of personal stake in in comic book movies and how they did and yeah, how I mean, they portrayed their characters. I read them so a lot like. as a kid, but you know really fell off in my. 20s at least <laughs> well well i guess as did i but spider-man was a character i mean there's a reason why he was always you know one of marvel's biggest and, and most popular characters and and a big part of it was his vulnerability um and and his flaws um which you didn't you know of course this is the stanley the you know the marvel thing is you know how about having heroes that actually have flaws they don't you know it's not so much like there's kryptonite here's the one thing that that, that floors them they're neurotic, you yeah. know, or they don't get along very well. They or live somewhat in the real world. You know, uh, they were given real locations that they lived in. Right, right, exactly. Uh, so the fact that, you know, Marvel took over the, uh, you know, kind of wrestled back their creation from Sony, because Sony said, I, uh, you know what, <laughs> we throw our hands in the air like we can't seem to get this right. And I think they did. I think they got the essence of the character far better than even the Sam Raimi yeah. Spider-Man movies, and in large part, you know, casting is a huge part of that. And I think Tom Holland just makes so much, so much more of what what the original concept of the character was meant to be—a teenager, yeah, like a kid who who actually worried about, you know, I can't go, you know, I can't go with you, Mister Stark, to Germany. I got homework, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so, 
they got that character right. And as far as, you know, everything else from there is kind of like cream cheese, as far as I'm concerned. If you get that character right, then then you're you are miles ahead of the game already. And, and, and I didn't I didn't hate the Sam Raimi stuff. It's uh, the first two anyway. But but this one just seemed much more in keeping with the, you know, the, the concept of the comic and what made the comic actually as good as it was. Although, you know, I, I went through a period of a few months ago where I started rereading all the old Spider-Man, like from, from one up to, I don't the know. Steve Ditko, uh, the Steve Ditko yeah, era. The Steve Ditko era and the John Romita era and, and the endless Ross Andrew era. And I came, I came to a startling conclusion about Peter Parker. What's that? He's an asshole. <laughs> he really is an asshole. It, it's, it's amazing to me, actually, that, you know, we think of him the way the Tom Holland character is, like this kind of sweet and sort of innocent kid who's, you know, he's kind of wisecracking, you know, but, but he's nervous about a lot of things and so on and so forth. The actual character, while he was nerdish and, and bookish and all of that, at, le- at least in, in the Ditko sort of versions... He became increasingly surly, yeah. And yeah. you know, he was beset with with problems and and romance issues, and you know, all of New York hated Spider Man for you know jo- Jonah Jameson was always giving him a hard time. But he really was kind of a surly dick to just about everybody. And and it's amazing to me going through those those comics realizing how many scenes involve friends of his saying. You know, Pete, what's wrong? And him saying, you know, oh, leave me alone, you know. <laughs> and you know, I'm like, why does anyone hang out with this guy? He's just a douche. Well, there was, uh, there was some talk I know in recent years that, that, that Steve Ditko was under the spell of uh, Ayn Rand. No, and, yeah. And that, you know, some of that sort of, you know, elitism of the, of the Randian point of view uh, seeped into the uh, Spider-Man character. It's been years since I've gone back and, and read that. I'd be curious to to see that again. Well, I, I would suggest to people who have this fond memory of Peter Parker as, as this sort of sweet, you know, innocent kid, again, the way Tom Holland plays him, reread the comics and, and be prepared to go, ah, <laughs> oh, why is he being such a dick? He's much more likable in costume than out of costume. It's a funny thing. Like, in costume, he's fun and, you know, he's Spider-Man, you know, and wisecracking and has a good sense of humor about stuff. And when he's not in costume, he's just mad and bitter and, and that, was, that was the thing that really stood out for me. And uh, I, I feel like somehow, and I guess it's some weird part of the tenor of our times, like being a superhero has become a miserable, horrible, world-on-your-shoulders experience. And that, was, you know, that wasn't what I was looking for when I was reading comics, you know? And it's nice to have real problems in there, but, you know, you would hope the joy of having superpowers and having this power would be a, a euphoric thing. And, and this is in this film, I feel like after a long time, they finally capture, really, like the fun of being in it. And it, just the little things of him, like, you know, uh, uh, getting somebody, rescuing somebody's stolen bike and things like that you know there's a a, a real joy to and uh, from you know, really I, I don't think I have any complaints about the film really at all I think Michael Keaton is an incredible villain and he has a great sense of being much more powerful than Spider-Man Spider-Man seems like you know it, it's good to, you know he's behind the eight ball the whole time in, in, in his fight against the vulture and uh, the multiculturalism to me really really appeals
appealed to my son who living in center city philadelphia you know is much more part of that world and he really appreciates when it's not you know a pure white world and the, and the fact that they took all these iconic characters that have been with it and, and uh, you know changed their their background a little bit i thought it was uh, something that, that gave it a texture that really uh, stood out and, and uh, gave it an extra uh, sense of believability and even the, the little things of, of when these there's a big scene I love that there's the big scene on the Staten Island Ferry and there's a big scene at the Washington Monument. To me, that felt uh, almost Hitchcockian to, to put these in these positions. But uh, the Washington Monument scene sort of goes on hold for a while while he can't break through a small bullet bulletproof window. And that's the sort of texture of reality. I love when it seeps into films, you know, because all that would just be, you know, a passing thought with the, you know, the, the Marvel heroes in the past, it seems. But yeah, from beginning to end, I, I just found it to be well-paced and well-directed and and uh, yeah, I was happy to be joyous at the movies. Well, you have to give. I mean, the fact that the movies are so ubiquitous is, you know, it, it is overwhelming. And, and as a, you know, as film critics, like, how many more times do we have to review such things? But you have to give Marvel this much that they they've established their bona fides to the point where they can really screw with their own sort of system, and and they can they can play with their. Um, their concepts of heroes and 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 whatnot in a way that gives them much more freedom than than you kind of think of at first like guardians of the galaxy plays with a very different deck of cards than you know say uh, the avengers certainly you know the spider-man film doctor strange uh ant-man ant-man like each each of these films and now you know the the upcoming thor uh which by all accounts, is actually kind of a comedy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I can appreciate the fact that they're finding different ways of of putting out their stuff wh- where it doesn't just feel kind of you know cookie cutter. Oh yeah, here's the you know here's the next Captain America movie. Here's the next you know. Spider-Man film or, or what have you. I think maybe the best perspective on it is early on when they were really establishing being this all-powerful franchise, there was this sense of, like, we can't mess it up, and there was a stiffness and, and a very calculated quality to it. But now that it really is this established brand and they have a guaranteed audience, maybe there is a freedom that is working into the, into those films more. It feel, In that sense, and I know they're both both properties are owned by Disney, which is peculiar, but in that as, sense, as well as Star Wars at this yeah, point, you know, very odd. All hail the mouse. Anyway, uh, and which which brings us back to uh, Florida Project. But anyway, <laughs> I I do think um, I do think it's it's interesting to compare Marvel's sort of ascendancy uh, in this time period, this kind of creative period, as, with Pixar's, because I, I you have a similar sense of creative energy. Like there really, there feels like there's creative inspiration involved in their films, as opposed to just, you know, mashing the numbers and and you know like the, this Justice League movie. Look, I I actually really enjoyed Wonder Woman. I'm very, I'm happy that Warner Brothers, you know, DC finally got one right. I, I was, you know, I, I gave a rave review for it and, and so on and so forth. So it's I'm I'm not so in the tank for Marvel that I can't give DC any credit. But I can just from looking at the trailers of the Justice League, I am deeply worried that. Zack Snyder is just not, you know, he makes a certain kind of movie. I'm not a fan of it, yeah. but he makes a certain kind of movie. And to see him try to be like, well, hey, I can be fun too, everyone. Hey, look, you know, I'm making jokes. 
And I do, they, the I, DC films to me almost seem like they're stuck in the same place Marvel was, you know, ten years ago, where they're still really trying to establish their seriousness and their gravitas, and uh, there's not a looseness to those films. Even Wonder Woman, which I liked the best of them, and it was great to see a, this woman in the heroic thing, like still felt a little bit like a pat superhero movie I'd seen before. True enough, although I, you can't you can't emphasize enough the sort of politics of of that film and giving giving a female superhero really that kind of agency. Yeah, yeah. In you know, and you know, Gal Gadot. I mean, the whole the whole thing was to me was was really uh, kind of exciting in yeah. a way that you know. I've never been a huge like Superman or Batman guy. Again, look, Justice League might end up being. I could be completely wrong, and it could end up being really a lot of fun, and 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 all these ways. I'm not like hoping it, it's going to fail. I just see the trailers, and I see Zack Snyder, and I can see him like kind of really trying, you know. And I, I have my doubts. <laughs> On that note, um, we could continue talking uh, here forever, but I think we're going to wrap things up here. Thanks so much for uh, coming out this morning, a rare morning uh, recording of the Fun and podcast. And I, I really appreciate you uh, sharing all your, your thoughts on film. Sure thing, Dan. It's been a lot of fun. One, two, three, four. That's it for today's Fun to Know podcast. Thanks to Sean Baker and Piers Marchant for the conversation. You can check out the Florida Project in theaters now and check out Piers' writing online at Philadelphia Magazine and Arkansas Online. As for me, you can check out my writing on film at Falker.com. That's P-H-A-W-K-E-R.com. Hear me spitting jazz and beyond on WPRB Princeton, Mondays from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., both over the air and at WPRB.com. And I hope you return back soon for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.